1: To the podcast.
0: Welcome back, everybody. Hi, Justin. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, Lindsay. How are you?
0: Um, I think I'm okay. I've gone gone through a lot of changes this yeah. summer. A lot of great episodes, a lot of life changes.
1: We have both uh, went through some big life changes. We both got changed careers yeah. at the same time. Started new jobs.
0: Both very technical related. I mean yeah. you and I are always on this same kind of wavelength. And-
1: it's super weird. So it's been yeah. the last uh, Three or four months. It's been uh, daunting trying to keep up the uh, podcast, the episodes. You probably, I'm sure, have noticed that we've went down to one episode per month. I don't know if we're going to keep doing that, but for right now, life-wise, it's we have to. We don't want to give up the podcast, but no. life changes as it does. I'm thankful that we still get to do this. Um, it's still one of my favorite things that we do. That we don't get paid for is to uh, come down here and talk movies. One hundred percent yeah and we're kind of going back to the well here we were just uh talking about tarantino a mere two or three episodes ago with jackie brown but we are back again with tarantino it's the 30th anniversary of reservoir dogs which uh, is really making me feel old because (laughs) i remember distinctly seeing reservoir dogs uh when it hit video cassette i was Fifteen, I think when Reservoir Dogs came out seeing this movie and having it be one of the first I think like real like independent films that like I had never seen a movie made like this before like i had never seen an opening like this it's like all dialogue and people are talking pop culture and but then it's a gangster movie and down and dirty and cool music and it was just right away so different from all of the big Hollywood movies that I was like interested in or going to see at the time like Encino Man was out a leaguered their own that we've talked about on this podcast. My Cousin Vinny, uh, Far and Away, A Few Good Men, Death Becomes Her. Um, I did not
0: saw that in the theater. Yeah, but just,
1: you know, (laughs) I mean, it was like a time when it was like the very uh, big budget. These were all huge movies with established stars. That's kind of like all I watched. You know, I didn't really have... I was 15, so I wasn't going, you know, the, wasn't going out to like an independent cinema somewhere, like really. I didn't have bro- older brothers and sisters, someone wasn't handing down stuff to me. My mom had a couple of weird, like Cronenberg movies in her collection, but like I just wasn't exposed to like independent cinema. Like I'd never at that point had never seen a Jarmusch movie or hadn't seen Sex Lies and Videotape or anything like that. And then I see Reservoir Dogs, and it just wow. This is so different than all of these big Hollywood type movies I'd seen and stories that, you know, are kind of structured the same way and seeing something that was like totally unstructured and like out of order and out of sequence. And it kind of blew my mind. When I watch it now, it doesn't hold the same kind of weight that it did when I first saw this. But thinking about it in terms of 30 years, it really hits me how big of an impact this movie had on me when I first saw it and the way I think about movies.
0: I think that's what you have to do with this one is thinking about it in terms of when it came out. I certainly didn't see Reservoir Dogs until after Pulp Fiction. And the only reason I think I even saw Pulp Fiction was because the dudes that I was friends with in high school or that were older than me you know, Pulp Fiction was the jam. And if you like that, duh, you have to see Reservoir Dogs. And it wasn't really my jam at the time. And I, I don't think that I got it or understood why it was, you know, a thing. I think for me, it was too male and independent movies at that point. And I went kind of the other route, the, the gay independent cinema, which is the furthest thing you could get from Reservoir Dogs. So, we were, we were both in the same uh, independent section of the video store, Justin, but you were one side and I was on the on the other. But I've certainly grown to appreciate uh, these early Quentin Tarantino movies.
1: And there's also, too, a sense of um, wanting to share a movie like this. Like, I remember when I got the VHS tape of Reservoir Dogs, my friend Justin Hayward, who used to do some stuff on this podcast way back in the day and I've been friends with him forever he's a director in Chicago now we went to high school together and I remember like I didn't know him but I heard that he was in the movies and so I tracked him down in the halls like have you have you heard of Reservoir Dogs you know and he's like no I never heard of it and just gave him the VHS copy and he oh, said God, that you know adorable. he said he like took it home and his stepdad was uh sitting in the living room he's like oh this Kid loaned me this movie, and so they put it in, and we're just kind of like, "What is happening?" I mean, because his stepdad even hadn't seen anything like that before. I don't know. It was just like it was like a special thing where just like this is different. You know, you just could tell that it was different. You wanted to share with people that were into movies, you know, we'll get into it in a little bit here, but just this spark of like independent cinema in the early nineties and like started getting written about, you know, there's independent filmmaker magazine, even like Premiere magazine, things that were outside of just entertainment weekly. You could find publications where they were talking about directors like Steven Soderbergh and Alison Anders and Robert Rodriguez. I think Reservoir Dogs was, you know, amongst the year of 1992 coming out of Sundance where there was this pop, this first burst of like independent cinema was taking off. You know, there was that like little bit in the eighties with Jarmouche and Spike Lee, but this was like a second generation of younger filmmakers that were going even bolder and like kind of doing crazier films. A lot to talk about with this movie. Uh, you know, we did, we saved our Tarantino talk for this episode. We didn't go delving into his career too much and Jackie Brown, because this is the beginning of his career. And I think the interesting makings of him uh, becoming the sort of like phenomenal filmmaker and someone who didn't go to film school was like interesting to me. You know, he's like every filmmaker's dream scenario, which doesn't happen because most people don't have the talent, writing talent that Tarantino has. And since this is
0: his uh, first directed to completion film, we're gonna talk about everything Reservoir Dogs down to the manner of storytelling, which is one of my favorite aspects of this movie, the very Tarantino-esque dialogue. One topic I can't wait to get to with you, Justin, is the action and violence aspect of this. I think that we might have some differing opinions on this. The violence really made an impact when this movie debuted at Sundance, and we'll get into that. The release, reception, the audience, the music. There's a part that everyone, if you've seen this movie, you know what I'm talking about. And how does this movie hold up, you know, 30 years later?
1: It's definitely a movie that has aged strangely. Not bad, not great. Strangely, huh? Yeah. But we'll get into that. Anyway, lots of Tarantino talk. We'll also get into our picks of the week, which it was tough. I didn't want to do a Tarantino movie. Uh, I will say I did attempt to watch Natural Born Killers because I thought I might do that one. Mm, And uh, I couldn't even make it like 30 minutes into the movie. That movie, uh, man... Plays differently to me now.
0: I, I keep wanting to try it and then I talk myself yeah. out of it. I mean I've seen it but it's been twenty years. That's
1: how it was for me. i be I'm curious what you think. Yeah. It was just uh, overload. So I landed on uh, James Mangold's Copland, and I've been watching it several times um, because I it was a movie I didn't like the first time I saw it when it came out. But um and I'll talk about that when I get to the pick of the week. But in respects to Ray Liotta just kind of watching it with Ray Liotta on my mind. He does a lot of the heavy lifting in this movie. He has a lot of the emotional scenes. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, finally time to do this pick. I almost did it whenever we did uh, Mangold's uh, Girl Interrupted and I went with something else I don't remember, but Copland's going to get a mention in this episode.
0: I really enjoyed this when I watched it back when we did Girl Interrupted, and I didn't think that I would be into it, and it had been, I can't honestly even remember now if I'd seen it before or not, but I really enjoyed um, the walkthrough of it. Yeah. Yeah. Some things that don't totally work, but I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it. For my pick of the week, I did the anthology film Four Rooms, which features uh, one story written, directed by Quentin Tarantino.
1: It had been a long time since I watched Four Rooms. I rewatched it. You did? Uh, yeah. I don't know that I feel a lot differently than I did when it came <laughs> out, but it's an interesting movie. And I think it's interesting in terms of like the Tarantino moment in history and the classmates of his from Sundance of that year. I think uh, like any indie success story, the story behind Ro- Ro- Four Rooms getting worked up and how it all came to be is just as interesting as the movie itself.
0: Oh man, I didn't even go into that. Wow. But yeah,
1: there certainly is a story behind that. Well, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moment after our picks of the week. But before we get into our first clip from Reservoir Dogs, which this is going to be movie where it's like hard to find a clip because... There's so much good dialogue, but it goes on for so long, so hopefully I'm going to have to cut a scene off or something. I'll figure something out. But can you give me your interpretation, your lowdown of what this movie is about?
0: Though Reservoir Dogs might seem like a simple plot, its execution is anything but a linear path. Six low-life criminal types are brought together by a father-son pair of gangsters to execute a diamond heist. The confidence in all of them is unwavering in the opening scene. The power of their matching black suits, white shirts, and skinny black ties gives off the power of solidarity. But this is just surface level. We never see what happened during that botched diamond heist. All we get is the aftermath of how everything went to hell. Only through each other's words, behaviors, and actions are we to create a true picture as to what happened and what caused everything to go so wrong. Is there a fox in the hen house, a squeak in the wheel, a rat in the woodpile? What caused this gang of testosterone-driven thugs let it all go wrong and unravel? We're along for the ride as they question each other's loyalty and why this surefire plan became anything but an easy job to pull off. I like it. Yeah, I'd go watch that movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sounds interesting.
0: Yeah. I wonder what happens
1: let's go to our first clip. We'll come back. We'll get into it.
0: You think they're all going to make it out alive?
1: I don't think so. Probably not.
2: Come on, throw in a buck. Uh Uh-uh, I don't tip. You don't tip? No, I don't believe in it.
1: You don't believe in tipping?
2: Do you know what these chicks make? They make shit. Don't give me that. She don't make enough money, she can quit. Let me just get this straight. You don't ever tip, huh? I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But I mean, it's tipping automatically uh, It's for the birds. <coughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. Hey, this girl was nice. She was OK. I mean, she wasn't anything special. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'd go over 12% for that.
2: Hey, look, I ordered coffee, right? Now, we've been here a long fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want it filled six times. Six times, well, you know, what if she's too fucking busy? Words too fucking busy shouldn't be in a waitress's vocabulary.
3: Excuse me, Mr. Pink, but the last fucking thing you need is another cup of coffee.
2: <laughs> Jesus Christ, I mean, these ladies aren't starving to death. They make minimum wage. and you know, I used to work minimum wage, and when I did, I wasn't lucky enough to have a job the society deemed tip worthy. You don't care they would counting on your tips to live? You know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. This is a hard job. So is working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bullshit. Wade sing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country. It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. Fuck all that.
1: Jesus Christ.
2: I mean, I'm very sorry the government taxes their tips. That's fucked up. That ain't my fault. I mean, it would appear that waitresses are one of the many groups the government fucks in the ass on a regular basis. I mean, if you show me a piece of paper that says the government shouldn't do that, I'll sign it. Put it to a vote, I'll vote for it. But what I won't do is play ball. And it's non-college bullshit you give me. I got two words for that. Learn to fucking type. Because if you're expecting me to help out with the rent, you're in for a big fucking surprise.
1: Just convince me. Give me my
2: dollar back. Hey, leave the dollars there.
3: All right, ramblers, let's get rambling. Wait a minute. Who didn't throw in? Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink? Why not? You don't tip. You don't tip? What do you mean you don't tip? You don't believe in it. Shut up. What do you mean you don't believe in it? Come on, you cough up a bucket, cheap bastard. I paid for your goddamn breakfast. All right, since you pay for the breakfast, I'll put in. But normally I would never do this. Mind what you normally would do. Just coughing your goddamn fuck <laughs> like everybody else. Thank you.
1: Tarantino's story of his rise to stardom is almost like an urban legend. It's kind of crazy. It's you know, and if you're familiar with Tarantino, I'm sure you've heard this a million times that he was a movie geek worked at a video store, worked there for like seven years, getting exposed to all the cinema, dreaming of becoming a filmmaker, and then not only selling some screenplays, uh, writing, directing, producing uh, one of the biggest indie sensations of the film festival circuit of the 90s, but then going on to make Pulp Fiction and kind of changing the landscape of cinema, like becoming one of the most renowned, copied, talked about filmmakers of the last 25, 30 years. He does possess something that I think causes excitement to movie lovers, and I think a lot of that is directly related to him being such a movie lover himself because there's a few filmmakers that when you listen to interviews about them, they love to talk about movies, not just their own, not just their own work, but what's inspired them, all the movies that they love, movies that are out currently. That's what Tarantino pulls from is all of these movies that he loved in the past, in the present, and is able to bring a lot of that into his films. And a lot of people, I think, right around this time when Reservoir Dogs came out, he was pulling from foreign films that he had seen of the past 10 years, 20 years. And I don't think it's said as much now that Tarantino's been making movies for 30 years, but around the time Reservoir Dogs came out and Pulp Fiction, when he really, really started to become like the director that everybody was talking about, you know, he got called out a lot for ripping off other movies, you know, he did take a lot of the movies that he was influenced, pulled ideas from them, names, and yes, I think it could be, you know, there an argument could be made. Where do you draw the line between you're pulling actual like ideas from other movies and starting them into your own? But movies have been doing that forever. I think it was easy to attack Tarantino because generally anytime something hits the cultural zeitgeist and everybody starts to love something, then you have to have people come in to really get angry about it because either they're jealous or they just hate that everybody likes the same thing and they want to feel different. Or there's people that really love Tarantino, I think, when it started and then once he got so big, it was like, oh, well, if everybody likes him, then I can't like him. I think that there was a lot of that around the time the Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, Pulp Fiction, this this moment in cinema where everybody wanted a new filmmaker to love and he became that filmmaker.
0: He said something like, you'd have to be dead inside to not be inspired by other filmmakers. And I do think he's right in that case. I don't think that there's anyone that is a writer like him or really has been. Sure, he can be inspired and take stories or aspects of stories and rework them into his own I don't think that that's necessarily a ripoff because everything that I at least that I've seen that he's done, there is no one that has a voice like him. And it's very distinct. And that's how you know that you're watching a Tarantino movie.
1: Yeah. And I think, too, that Tarantino borrows from a lot of movies that the general mainstream aren't familiar with. And uh, there's a lot of movies that I've found out about because someone has said, oh, like this is taken from this movie or this movie and movies I'd never heard of and from the 60s and 70s. And I think that it's a lot more obscure than, say, someone saying, and this is De Palma doing Hitchcock. That is something that is kind of bland, you know, Whereas, like Tarantino. There's all these little surprises of like, you can list like 35 movies, weird movies that he like pulled from to, to make his own. But to me, his movies always feel wildly original. Getting back to the movie at hand, Reservoir Dogs, this is a movie that borrowed from... A lot of genre pictures. If you've seen interviews with Tarantino, he loves genre pictures. You know, he adores them. Uh, Most of his movies, I think, would be considered genre blends, you know, whether they be westerns, crime. You know, pulpy movies. Reservoir Dogs is loaded with that. Tarantino loved all these old movies that had interesting scumbag characters and like rounding them all up and putting them together in one movie. I've seen so many movies that are like mediocre, but there's this one character. He's like really interesting. You know, he's kind of a bad guy. He's like on the fringe. And I feel like this is a movie that's just full of that character. And that's why I like it so much because we're seeing like this underbelly world of, these characters and their, you know, they're crass and they're offensive. And a lot of that stuff now especially hasn't aged well. But there's something still here that's like very electric.
0: One thing that he did, especially for this time period coming out of the 80s, was the decade before the, the 80s was a time when, and don't get me wrong, I love 80s movies. I love so many. The, the cheesiest ones at times. But a lot of characters in movies needed to be likable. The audience needed to feel good. That was the trend in uh, a lot of films at the time. There needed to be a happy ending. There needed to be something that the audience left um, feeling better about themselves or liking the main characters. But what Tarantino did was take just as interesting of a story, but yeah, have your main characters be interesting scumbags like you didn't have to like these guys but maybe there was a nugget within them that made you want to know more made you interested in the story and I think Reservoir Dogs does that all of these guys are I mean there's there's dialogue and we'll get into like some of this offensive dialogue but it's like it's real terrible at times like talking about I don't know. We we listed this off off the mic on how many times there's something racist about multiple races in this movie. There's like anti-gay stuff, anti-women like it. These guys suck, but it doesn't mean that they're not interesting and fascinating characters and create this entire world that maybe we don't feel good about this at the end of the day or good about these characters. But it doesn't mean that it's not an engaging story.
1: And another thing, too, that Tarantino did differently, I think, that makes this movie stand out as far as like crime cop type movies of Mm -hmm. that era is that usually we had like a hero cop or like a hero undercover cop. And in this movie, you don't have necessarily... The true hero. I mean, Tim Roth is the undercover cop, but he's like the blandest character of this whole group. And he's never really framed as like a cool hero type character. And well, he certainly doesn't uh, right away in the beginning. I mean, he's down for the count. I mean, he's yeah. like shot and wounded. He never really is like the strong character when they're all together. He's the one who's laying on the floor in a pool of blood through the whole movie.
0: He's the closest to the uh, a feminized character that we have in this movie because he's literally bleeding out his life yeah. before us. He's the weakest, and that's not coming out of the 80s. That's not what we're used to when we have a cop character. Both the main cops that we have in this movie uh, don't really have a great time in this yeah. film.
1: And before we get too far down this road with Tarantino, I kind of want to backtrack a little bit. Um, I was talking about... <laughs> Tarantino working at a video store. You got infused
0: with the spirit. You got excited. I did. I'm starting to go out (laughs) of
1: sequence. Tarantino's working at Video Archives in Los Angeles, loving movies, talking with the customers, works with a bunch of movie loving people, including his friend Roger Avery, who would become a collaborator, getting that feeling like this is what I want to make a movie. Uh, He makes an attempt to do a movie called My Best Friend's Birthday that he shoots on 16mm. It's an uncompleted film. You can catch clips of it are on YouTube. And you can see there's a spark there. You can kind of see a little bit of of his early talent of like capturing unique characters. But even though that movie was a failure that he didn't get it completed, um, he didn't give up. And he knew that he wanted to be a writer. He definitely knew that he wanted to be a director.
0: And that first film served as his film school experience. Tarantino never went to an actual film school. He took acting classes. He started off in that vein, um, but really found himself veering more towards into wanting to make films. And My Best Friend's Birthday is where he figured out how things worked. He had a great vision for what he wanted to create, and it was really a crash course in how uh, a production could go down, especially one on a small budget. And with someone as innovative As Tarantino found himself to be in with the knowledge that he had in his freakish movie uh, trivia and uh, just encyclopedia of a brain, it's really no surprise that he should be able to crank out um, a couple scripts before Reservoir Dogs was even a thought. So by 1989, he had written but not sold the scripts for True Romance and Natural Born Killers. And it's around this time when he meets who would become his uh, future longtime collaborative partner, Lawrence Bender.
1: And Tarantino meets Bender through his friend Scott Spiegel. Now, we talked about Scott Spiegel before on our Evil Dead episode. Scott Spiegel grew up with Sam Raimi and company, and he co-wrote Evil Dead 2. And Tarantino was a huge fan of Evil Dead 2. Now... A lot of Tarantino's story has to do with his talent. A lot of it also has to do with luck, the fact that he lived in Los Angeles, the fact that Tarantino is interested in who does what in movies. Most people probably wouldn't know who Scott Spiegel is, but Tarantino's like, he co-wrote Evil Dead 2. Yeah, and yeah. he uh, had also, Scott Spiegel had made a movie called Intruder. It was a slasher film that also had uh, Sam Raimi in it Has a little part with Bruce Campbell as well as Lawrence Bender has a small part in it. Lawrence Bender also produced Intruder, and so uh, once Tarantino was wanting to, you know, get it in the movies, he was hanging out with Scott Spiegel. They were kind of getting drunk, watching episodes of Miami Vice, and Spiegel's like, you know, you should meet my friend Lawrence Bender. You know, he produces movies, even though Lawrence Bender hadn't produced too much. He starts up this immediate friendship with Tarantino because, like everybody that talks about Tarantino when they first meet him, it's his enthusiasm that wins people over. They're like, This guy is passionate about cinema, he's passionate about working on the movie. And sometimes that's enough to, to get people kind of fired up enough to say, Hey, you know, I want to help this guy make his dream come true and that kind of is the path that him and Bender started on when uh, Tarantino said you know I've got this movie called Reservoir Dogs that I would like to direct
0: and kind of what cracks me up the most about saying I've got this movie called Reservoir Dogs is he didn't have a script when he said that to Bender. He had True Romance and Natural Born Killers and felt frustrated because he had these two scripts that he felt like should have sold by now. So Out of Frustration was where Reservoir Dogs was born. So in about three and a half, four weeks, he cranks out the script for the movie. Bender reads it and absolutely loves it and signs on to produce. He asked Tarantino to give him a year to raise the money and in true Tarantino form, he's like, no way, you got two months, at most three Whatever happens after three, we're just going to go forward and do it. We've got a great script here. Let's pull some funding together. Even if we don't have, you know, a million dollars, we can make at least a decent movie with this great script that we have. Now, everything absolutely uh, falls into line and completely changes when Bender takes the script for Reservoir Dogs and gives it to his acting teacher, who just happened to be friends with Harvey Keitel. His acting teacher reads it, loves it, and ends up giving it to Harvey Keitel, who then calls up Lawrence Bender, and you can see where the ball is rolling here. Of course, Tarantino and Bender are all for Harvey Keitel being involved in this project and starring in the film, and with a big name like that attached, it's going to make it easier to get funding. And this also legitimizes the two. This proves that they are filmmakers. They've got this great script with a big name actor attached. Now, they just need the money. Tarantino suggests you guys let's go beyond Los Angeles. Let's you need to go to New York. You need to look outside of your normal circle for actors for this film and they're like, "Yeah, great idea, but we don't have the money to make that happen." I listened to an interview of Tarantino talking about the the money that was keeping him afloat. At this time, was residuals that he got from uh, having a background role playing Elvis in a Golden Girls episode. That it was one of the most played episodes and most requested to be uh, played episodes, and he was living off of that money. Like they didn't have any, they didn't have enough money to go to New York and cast this film. So that's when Keitel says, "Okay, you know what? I'm gonna take care of this. I'm gonna fly you guys out there. We're gonna go out there. We're gonna take a weekend, and we're gonna cast." this movie and that's when tarantino and bender were like okay i think it's time you be producer you want to be on board with that and Kaitel said something like it's about time guys yes i will sign on to be co-producer and star in this let's go to new york and as far as funding goes bender and tarantino with the help of monty hellman who was the director of silent night deadly night and producer richard gladstein Um, who Tarantino credits as being the guy who took a chance on an unknown kid and really built him up. With the help of these two guys, the budget for Reservoir Dogs blossomed into one and a half million dollars.
1: And again, through the help of Keitel, Bender and Tarantino flew to New York to audition actors and that's where they secured Steve Buscemi. Tim Roth, and Michael Madsen. Uh, John Cryer was asked to audition for one of the roles, but he turned it down. I don't know if I can picture John Cryer as one of the thieves in Reservoir Dogs, but maybe maybe he was never given that chance to play like such a scumbaggy character.
0: Yeah, who who knows what would have happened to his career, right? Yeah.
1: He might not be a multimillionaire starring in the show Two and a Half Men. I know, right? <laughs> I think he did okay for himself. Yeah, he did all right. <laughs> and uh really just want to stop here to take a moment to sort of set the scene here, how unique this was, you know, of all the stories we've read doing this podcast of filmmakers starting out, um, indie filmmakers, you know, the stories like Sam Raimi or Kevin Smith, Richard Linklater, where they had a little bit of money and they cobbled together finances and then shot it guerrilla style or whatever. Very few stories where uh, someone was working in a video store and then within a few years They have a $1.5 million budget with someone like Harvey Keitel, who had been in movies for like 15 years, and Tarantino's going to be the director. And all these people are kind of building him up. But he hadn't actually directed anything other than, again, a failed 60 millimeter movie when he was uh, working at the video store. I think this is where you have a filmmaker could go into this very nervous. But Tarantino, again, proves himself to be this confident, talented filmmaker who comes in. And one of the books I read on Tarantino was that the first assistant director who was hired on Reservoir Dogs said the crew was kind of wondering what the hell this guy's going to do. I mean, they had read the script and they were like, clearly this guy's a brilliant writer, but he's never directed anything. He didn't come from music videos. He didn't come from commercials. He hasn't set foot on a set to direct. She said that you know, he showed up and in front of the crew kind of went through the whole movie like bit by bit like acted out all the parts and said here's where the camera is going to go and everybody was just kind of stunned like they hadn't seen a first time director or someone who was still kind of green have that kind of vision of what they wanted and that kind of passion and wherewithal and confidence and i think that's a really big thing to emphasize because it wasn't just Tarantino directing some of his friends or unknown actors he had Again, Harvey Keitel, uh, Michael Madsen had been in some movies. He had just completed filming Thelma Louise. Lawrence Tierney had been a uh, someone that Tarantino like, admired from movies when he was growing up. And so this was a pretty serious endeavor. And to be able to walk on that set and command the room, it's impressive in its own right. But to be able to execute this movie in X amount of days, and he was able to do it. He was able to finish this film. From everything I've read, there really were no troubles in the production of the movie. Most instances that I've read about Tarantino is that he, from day one of directing movies, walking on set, knew what he wanted, had a vision, was able to communicate with actors in a manner that uh, they understood what he wanted. And he was also able to, when things weren't going right, to go toe-to-toe with someone like Lawrence Tierney when we get into the casting section Many crazy stories of him, but Tarantino was able to shut that down and say, no, you need to listen to me. You need the focus so that they could continue filming.
0: One thing that irritated Lawrence Tierney was the dialogue. Tarantino's dialogue, he thought, was repetitive and annoying. And there's some behind the scenes shots of him getting really frustrated. You know, old gruff actor, like this is not the type of dialogue that he's used to. And granted, I think Tarantino's a fantastic dialogue writer but sometimes four sentences could get condensed into one so i get where tyranny's coming from but he's um maybe not locked into the vibe that tarantino's trying to create with the movie
1: yeah it seemed like they must have trimmed a lot of his stuff because in the opening of the movie he's doesn't really say too much except for the beginning and the end.
0: Yeah, that's true. One thing I noticed about the beginning of the movie, the opening scene, is that Tarantino might be one of the first hot take observationalists that we have uh, in movies. I mean, Madonna's like a virgin. No one's talking about that. Let's see, what was the other one? Um, Tipping. Tipping, yeah. Um, These things where, you know... I hate the phrase "hot take." I'm just gonna say that now. I hate it, but the idea of taking this thing that we all talk about and having a spin on it that no one's ever thought about before—I think it's annoying. But um, Tarantino does it. I don't know how many times throughout all of
1: his films. What's great about it is like it's relatable in the way of like we've all had like a hot take kind of discussion <laughs> yeah. where, even you know, in college or whatever, you're stoned and you're like. oh man Burger King is like 10 times better than McDonald's you know that sort of back and forth it's like so trivial but I think Tarantino with his dialogue goes a little bit deeper especially the tipping conversation where you also have it looks like a different generation you know of like Harvey Keitel's older and he's like you have no idea what you're talking about this is a hard job and you know and he actually has some like proof to back it up some facts about what waitresses make and how tipping helps them pay kids meals and everything. Like he kind of brings economy into the discussion. But then you have Mr. Pink who kind of rattles off some other, you know, his ideals of like, how come we're not tipping the guys at McDonald's? And it brings it all to like a head, you know, with Tim Roth, Mr. Orange saying, uh, he just convinced me, give me my dollar back. <laughs> it's a great way, it's a great scene to, you know, something that like I'm sure everybody's thought about tipping. You know, it's not something that he like came up with and no one's ever, you know, like, oh, man, I've never thought about how much we should tip or whatever. It's probably been a discussion that so many people have had, but to see it in the movie and see it uh, debated is like pretty exciting, especially to, uh, again, opening it with a pop culture icon like Madonna and what songs mean. It's like, how often do you hear uh, characters in a movie dissect the meaning of like a virgin or any other pop song, you know, that's in the charts?
0: Yeah, never. It doesn't happen. And by the same token of having something that's a new spin on things, Tarantino works in dialogue that's from older crime movies, you know, oh, that kind of thing's for the birds. Like, I'm not talking about like, they say it like they're from a 40s movie, but using phrases like, they don't know our names, but at any time they could be singing about us, you know, like yeah. using, using that kind of terminology, which is kind of fun in a lot of ways of having um, this 70s, 60s-style crime movie, but amped up to another level. I mean, introducing a lot of blood, for instance, in, in a high-crime movie like this. Yeah,
1: and I also, too, don't think that his use of pop culture talk is irrelevant to the story. I mean, none of these guys no, know each other, no. and it makes sense that when they pick up Mr. Orange from his apartment and they're all in the car you talk about trivial stuff like oh you know you guys remember this tv show when we were kids or the you know it 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 fits into the story in a relevant way it's not just like hey i'm gonna make these guys talk about shows that i liked when i was a kid kind of thing um it feels uh realistic to the story and it seems like a a good way to have them break the ice for their characters but at the same time it's just something that wasn't really done that often in movies sure things have been commented on in movies before Tarantino but for him to really uh blow it up the way he did I mean now we see it all the time but it was pretty unique for a small crime film in the early 90s
0: that scene in particular Tarantino squeezing in Pam Greer every yeah. every chance he can.
1: His colorful use of language in using a lot of racial slurs and derogatory comments toward all kinds of different races and, and women. And gays. And gays. To me, Reservoir Dogs is a movie that isn't necessarily of its time. This movie's 30 years old, but when this movie came out, it was pretty shocking some of the words that were coming out of these guys' mouth. But I think it's true to the characters of this movie story. I'm not saying when you listen to it it's any less offensive because you know you hear offensive stuff on YouTube and Instagram or wherever people are still saying talking like this yeah. because there are guys like this and I think that these are not supposed to be um model citizens of society. These are really? like <laughs> scumbags who are like ripping off uh jewelry from a from a bank and to me honestly I think like Looking in a movie like Pulp Fiction where Tarantino himself is like using the N-word in the third story of that, the Bonnie situation, was shocking then. But now is like almost kind of hard to watch. Whereas Reservoir Dogs, I think, again, it's like these guys are all like kind of racist and like scumbaggy. And so I think it fits to the story. But again, I'm not saying if someone watches this, I wouldn't be like, hey, why are you getting so offended kind of thing?
0: It's not one of those things that it's just of the time period. That's what we said. That's what the kids were saying then. Right. No, it's like these guys are are just those types of guys that that would say something like that. I do think that there are moments where it just goes really far a couple times like the chris penn scene with michael madsen and like the homoerotic wrestling that's this weird competing for daddy's attention with with joe cabot like the the leader of all of this lawrence tierney that goes really far and it's almost like wow, did a 13-year-old boy write this? Because that's the last time I heard somebody say something like that. And another time, Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi, there's just one time he just comes out with something racist that you're like, whoa, was that necessary? You know. But these characters, um, that's what they would say in those situations. And so it's jarring when you're just not used to hearing that. So, you know, if you've not seen this movie before, these are low-life scumbags. That's how they talk.
1: And just a few more things here before we take a break. One of the other things that was kind of jarring seeing this movie 1992 was Tarantino's use of storytelling by breaking things up um, into sections that were like out of order. We did an episode on true romance, and the original script for true romance was done in the style of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, where things were out of sequence, but Tony Scott loved the script but didn't like that out of order style. And so he put things in order I think Reservoir Dogs would be kind of boring if it was straightforward all in the same order. But I do think that as much as Tarantino does things out of sequence in this movie, the story to me never gets lost. It's always like very clear, the fact that he breaks up each individual characters and how each of them got the job of working on this heist gig and what their relationship is with Joe Cabot. It's very clean storytelling, even though, again, it's out of order he takes a moment to show these characters the little bit of information that we're going to, the audience is going to get on them. Obviously, these guys don't know each other outside of this job, but we're able to get a little bit of view into where they're coming from. We've come to understand that Michael Madsen's characters just getting out of jail, the relationship between nice guy Eddie. We see that Mr. White has worked with Joe many times. They've known each other for years, uh, comfortable enough to where he's asking him about his family. To me, the characters are well-defined enough to make the story make sense. And Tarantino doesn't get stuck in a, a bunch of subplots. The plot is still this job. It's simple. They, they They're going to rob this bank, get these jewels, and get away with it. But all of the setup is just story and it's just to give us a little more insight into their characters so that that way when we see the scenes where they're fighting each other in the warehouse we have a little something to go on we know where they're coming from we know where they stand
0: I couldn't agree more with you that this movie would be boring if it were just in order and we didn't have any of those moments where we learn more about uh, about the other characters I feel that it's not only creates this kind of fun confusion for the audience, before we know that Tim Roth is an undercover cop, it creates this intrigue and really has you on the edge of your seat like, okay, what happened? I I love that we never see the heist and that the information that is included is revealed to us for a specific purpose and at a specific time in order to kind of control the audience in, in what you're learning until the point when you know more than the characters in the movie and that's such a crafty way of getting an audience to be captivated by a film like this by a heist movie that if it were in order you've seen this a million times before but this is how it remains fresh and remains something new and tarantino mentioned that this movie in some ways feels more Like a play or a novel than a standard movie script being so straightforward. And as soon as he said it, I'm like, oh my God, it is. This is how a book reads by chapters. And all of his movies always have different chapters. And it's such a unique way of telling a story. And when you're Tarantino and you've started from your first film doing this and you've done it throughout your career, I mean, as if he needed one more aspect to set his films apart from other people's but telling stories in these chapter senses really adds a whole new dynamic to an otherwise kind of stale genre
1: and also it's a really clever way to make a low-budget movie that pretty much only takes place in one location to get us out of that location in a way that's logical like okay i'm gonna give you a little insight on these characters um and we're gonna leave this warehouse so that the audience doesn't get frustrated that we're just like trapped in this warehouse <laughs> of the whole yeah. movie, which usually the movies were, they never leave a location, seldom are interesting. You know, we, we, they start like running out of gas. And so I think it's a really great way to leave the action from the warehouse. We learn a little bit and we come back, you know, and it builds on that through the rest of the movie. And I think this is a good place to stop. We'll take a break. We'll go to a clip. When we come back, we'll talk about the cast, the release, the reception, the music, and the violence in this film. I mean, you had kind of like a little opposing difference, or we viewed it a different way, maybe.
0: And it's honestly kind of the opposite of what you might expect.
1: Yeah, when we come back.
0: Who's more desensitized, you or me? We'll find out. (laughs) That's a tough one, yeah.
3: We're going to be using aliases on this job. Under no circumstances do I want any one of you to relate to each other by your Christian names. And I don't want any talk about yourself personally. That includes where you've been, your wife's name, where you might have done time, or a bank maybe you robbed in St. Petersburg. what I want you guys to talk about, if you have to, is what you're gonna do. That should do it. Hear your names. Mr. Brown. Mr. White. Mr. Blonde. Mr. Blue. Mr. Orange. Mr. Pink.
2: Why am I Mr. Pink? Because you're a faggot, all right? (laughs) Why can't we pick our own colors?
3: No way. No way. Try it once and doesn't work. You get four guys all fighting over who's going to be Mr. Black. But they don't know each other, so nobody wants to back down. No way. I pick. You're Mr. Pink. Be thankful you're not Mr. Yellow.
2: Yeah, but Mr. Brown, that's a little too close to Mr. Shit. Mr. Pink sounds like Mr. Pussy. How about if I'm Mr. Purple? I mean, that sounds good to me. I will be Mr. Purple. You're
3: not Mr. Purple. Some guy on some other job is Mr. Purple. You're Mr. Pink.
2: Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool sounding name. All right, look, if it's no big deal to be Mr. Pink, you want to trade? Hey. Nobody's trading with anybody. This ain't a goddamn fucking
3: city council meeting, you know. Now, listen up, Mr. Pink. There's two ways you can go on this job my way or the highway. Now, what's it gonna be, Mr. Pink?
2: Jesus Christ, Joe, fucking forget
3: about it. It's
2: beneath me, you know. I'm Mr. Pink. Let's move on.
3: I'll move on when I feel like it. Yo, you always got the goddamn message? So, goddamn it, how are you guys? I can hardly talk. Let's go to work.
1: Now, just like we talked about in our Tarantino episode on Jackie Brown, Tarantino has a knack for casting all his movies. I think he's a talented writer director, but his eye for casting is uh, kind of unmatched. And it's interesting to see that that started with his first film with Reservoir Dogs. It's interesting to see everybody in this cast is someone who kind of became big after this movie, minus Harvey Keitel and maybe Chris Penn. Um, they had been in quite a few movies, and Lawrence Tyranny, of course. But the standouts in the cast, the, the main cast that play the thieves, were selected very carefully. You know, we said they went to New York to find Bashemi. One of the hardest casting that they did was casting Mr. Orange, and that was uh, played by Tim Roth,
0: you would think a role in any independent feature at this time would be something that actors are clamoring for, but the role of Mr. Orange, just no one really wanted to come in and read for it. And really, you know, he is pretty much dying the entire movie. He's sitting there in a pool of his own blood. He's being cradled by Harvey Keitel. He's the most defenseless, the most feminized character out of everyone. And he's the narc. He's the bad guy, the cop, but he's planted amongst all of these other low lives these bad guys but they're the ones that you're rooting for i don't know if it were me i think i would just be happy to be cast in the movie
1: yeah i guess i didn't really think about the fact that um if you, on the page you know when you're reading this it's like this guy's like on the floor like laying on yeah. the floor through like almost the entirety of the movie except for his little scenes where he's talking about getting the undercover job with the uh, other agent and tim roth didn't want to audition for the role i guess he's notoriously at least at that time. Hated auditioning, so he eventually um, got drunk with Tarantino and Harvey Keitel and did like some sort of improv type thing, but ended up ultimately getting the role. And Tim Roth is pretty good in this. I think he has a. I think there's times in the movie where. Uh, his accent kind of goes in and out
0: completely agree it does (laughs) it happens
1: you know he's not my definitely not my favorite character I mean I don't think he's supposed to be Um, I definitely don't think that they play him up to be some big hero in this movie no
0: I love his ashen white face it just keeps getting worse and worse as he's bleeding out on the floor when
1: we get to our uh, topic on violence in this movie I'm gonna come back to Tim Roth because it (laughs) kind of grossed me out these last (laughs) few watches just watching him slowly uh, lose all the blood in his body
0: yeah You know, you said that he's not one to audition. I was surprised to find out that for being a guy that came from doing TV movies in the UK and being very actor oriented, that he was a big fan of being put in the hands of a first time director. And it seems like everybody really in the cast once they met Tarantino and saw his vision really believed in this guy and Tim Roth was one of those he just really liked being in in the hands of a director
1: and i think what helped a lot is that they had Harvey Keitel on their side you know he was a veteran actor at this point he had been in some like legendary movies at this point taxi driver mean streets mm-hmm. and having him on as the producer and then also playing one of the leads i think really helped the other actors excited about this movie, especially I'm assuming Tim Roth getting to play opposite Harvey Keitel. I like Harvey Keitel in this movie. I know when we did our Taxi Driver episode, I said some disparaging things about his performance in that, (laughs) and I'm not going to go there with this. Again, he's not my favorite character in this movie, um, but I think he does a good job. I think he does a good job of being that elder character who's like been down these paths and when he's sort he's not training tim roth but he's kind of like given the lowdown on how he does things and tim roth is like being inquisitive with him and that scene where they're in the car together and he's talking about how to uh break down a manager who's like giving you lip. The way Kaitel plays that scene, you really get the sense that this is a guy who is seems like a pretty nice guy. You know, you can have casual conversation with him, but if it comes down to him dealing with a situation, having to get violent without having a second thought, he has the ability to do that without thinking about it. And he kind of says this whole like this Grizzly stuff about cutting off his pinky. And then after all that it's just like, yeah, let's get a taco.
0: Yeah, for being one in this ruthless group of dudes, Kaitel's Mr. White is the most caring of the entire bunch. The one that's being the father figure to Tim Roth's Mr. Orange. And, you know, it really comes through for me. I mean, obviously in those scenes... But right in the beginning, that he's the one that's defending servers and that you should tip them and arguing with Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi, about why he's completely wrong about not tipping people. That, to me, says that he has a better worldview. Obviously, that comes with being one of the elders of the group. But I think if there's going to be anybody that you have the most empathy for, it's going to be Mr. White because he's the one that cares more than anybody else in
1: the group. Kytel plays so well off of these actors, especially Steve Buscemi, because that's kind of our introduction into the warehouse is, you know, once Harvey Keitel's Mr. White gets Mr. Orange settled and he's laying on the floor in a pool of his own blood, the movie takes a beat. It kind of takes a breath. And then just Steve Buscemi comes in, Mr. Pink, just rapid fire. I mean, he is electric in this film. I mean, he is my absolute favorite character. Mm -hmm. I think on the page, everybody wanted Mr. Pink because he clearly has all the energy in the movie. And really all around, Steve Buscemi in the 90s was one of my favorite actors. Uh, He didn't look like a stereotypical Hollywood type actor. So in big Hollywood movies, he would usually play like a side character. But then for smaller independent films, he could be the leading man. And he did this really great balance of like, you know, he'd be in a movie like Con Air and then do... You know, a small movie like Living in Oblivion really, really had a fantastic career all through the 90s. And and, and furthermore, uh, his performance in Fargo is going to be one of my favorites, but probably Reservoir Dogs ranks in the top three here.
0: I think one of the first things I remember seeing him from was Tales from the Dark Side. I'm not saying that that's his best early performance, but that's one of the first ones I remember. I think Parting Glances was uh, one of Quentin Tarantino's first exposures to him, and certainly what put him on the market of independent cinema. I did that as a pick of the week. I forget which episode, but a ways back. And Mr. Pink is also my favorite character in the movie. And I wonder, too, if, Justin, do you think that he kind of represents the audience, too, of, like, how we're supposed to view the movie or how we feel about the movie, just out of curiosity.
1: Maybe not in the beginning, but I think definitely in the warehouse scenes, he seems to be the one who's like only using audience logic, like, why don't they do this, why don't they do that? He's kind of answering all these questions, and then he's also asking a lot of questions. Mm
0: -hmm. And it makes sense, to kind of what we're saying about him, that he is the voice of reason, he has Tarantino's voice, because originally, Quentin wrote this part for himself. He wanted to play Mr. Pink. But he did feel obliged to still try to cast for this role. And on the last day of casting, Busemi came in and Tarantino thought, okay, this guy could fit into this ensemble. And he told Steve, if you want this audition, you're going to have to take it from me. And he said, in hindsight, maybe that intimidated Steve Busemi a little bit. And he didn't have the best audition in the world. But he said that afterwards, he knew that it was going to work. And it would be a better idea for Quentin to play Mr. Brown. And... Buscemi take Mr.
1: Pink. It's kind of crazy to me that Busemi hasn't done any other Tarantino movies other than like a tiny bit part in Pulp Fiction. Like he seems perfect kind of actor for Tarantino's yeah. dialogue and yeah. had such a big part in Reservoir Dogs. I mean, maybe it's scheduling or whatever, or maybe they don't get along. I don't know. But Tarantino seems like he's brought back so many other people so from many. his other movies. It's a bummer that there's not uh, many Buscemi performances in Tarantino films of it, the future.
0: There's got to be a reason for that well Tarantino does play Mr. Brown his part is surprisingly a little limited for this but that isn't saying that it doesn't make an impact
1: I think Tarantino once he took the role of Mr. Brown he was like I'm gonna make sure I make an impression yeah In the beginning of the movie he has like <laughs> yeah. the first big monologue and then you know he has like a you know again that funny bit when they're doing the name giving out handing out the names I don't think the movie would have been anywhere near as good if he would have been Mr. Pink.
0: You need somebody neurotic and squirrely.
1: And I like that Mr. Pink is like a smaller guy. Like when he's, I mean, Tarantino is kind of a big dude. I mean, he's bigger than pretty much everybody in the cast. I mean, he's kind of was thinner and smaller frame back then, but he still kind of would just tower over Harvey Keitel, whereas like Buscemi, when they're squaring off, it looks more equal.
0: Somebody that is super intimidating in this movie is Michael Madsen playing Mr. Blonde. That guy, I mean, I love that actor. In this movie, he certainly makes an impression and it's one that's unassuming and pretty understated. And that's even before we get to the memorable scene with the Steeler's Wheel stuck in the middle with You song. His responses to when he's being confronted by Harvey Keitel and Steve Buscemi, like, you know, are you the narc? Like his just rebuttals are filled with such confidence and ego that he's terrifying right there.
1: Yeah, he goes down to me as one of the cool villains of the Mm -hmm. 90s movies. He was definitely like the actor that stuck out to me when this movie first came out. Just like, who is this guy? You know, he just plays such like an, you know, has like a very Elvis vibe. Like, you know, talks real calm, doesn't get rattled. It's interesting that he did right before this movie, he played... Susan Sarandon's boyfriend and Thelma and Louise and his character's So the opposite of that, he's like kind of shy. And, you know, he gets a little angry in that movie. But the way he acts in this is just totally cool and icy cold. I also love the way Michael Madsen plays this because things could get really, really stuffy with a bunch of actors like being in the same location. And he kind of breaks up the monotony with his character like he comes in, you know, he's sipping his shake. And he's off we, to the side. He's too. off to the side. Yeah, and we've already been hanging with all this intensity, you know, all the shouting and yelling, and you know what's going on. And when he's not acting freaked out, and I love, again, it's Tarantino asking questions in all his movies, like Mr. White saying, "I need to have you acting freaked out because yeah. <laughs> you not acting freaked out is making me more freaked out because this is all crazy." And Mr. Blonde is just calmly answers his questions, <laughs> and it's very seldom. That you see a cool character in the movie that doesn't come off kind of cheesy after a while. And I never really get that vibe from uh, Mr. Blonde. He always comes off like genuinely cool to me, even though he's a stone-cold killer. There we go. Yes, there we go. (laughs) It's not cool when he's killing people.
0: No, of course not. Michael Madsen was another one that didn't want to read for the role. He and Tarantino had known each other before, and Tarantino already knew that he wanted him for this role. But again, felt obligated to still cast for it, but kind of hurried up the casting process for Mr. Blonde because he wanted Michael Madsen to be able to commit quickly to the role, make sure that he's going to be the right guy to fit into this group. So kind of sped that up so we could get a commitment from Michael Madsen and then move on to casting other characters. Madsen, like I said, didn't want to read for it And even told Tarantino, no, I don't I don't need to. And let's just hang out. Let's just talk about it. And Tarantino's in his head, you know, thinking, cool. Yeah, let's we can we can sit around. We can we can talk about it. We can talk about scenes. But eventually I'm going to make you make you read for it. And he did. He read for a couple scenes. And in the end, it was the legendary torture scene, which I, I think we'll talk about in a second when we get to music. It was that scene that really sold Tarantino that Madsen just took it to a whole other level.
1: And out of all the characters who were assigned a color for their name, the one that gets the least amount of screen time is Mr. Blue, played by Edward Bunker. And I think this is totally a Tarantino thing, that he would cast Eddie Bunker in this role. Uh, Eddie Bunker is like someone that I don't think... Most directors or writers would know who that is. I think he was kind of a novelty to some people. He was a career criminal, but he ended up writing the uh, cop drama Straight Time with Dustin Hoffman. And then he got a little bit more famous. Um, He did some acting bit parts in movies and then wrote the movie Runaway Train, which was kind of a big hit and got some Oscar notoriety. And he does, I think, have one of the funnier lines when they're doing the... Madonna bit. I just Every I don't know why I up, don't know why funny. it cracks me up so much that he like he says something like yeah I liked her when she did Lucky Star and Borderline but when she got into that Papa don't preach phase I just tuned out. <laughs> it's just like such like a funny old man thing to say. It is
0: really funny to um, hear that come out of his mouth in particular.
1: Yeah. You know Borderline.
0: <laughs> I like Mister Blues addition to this movie. He does seem to get uh yeah pushed aside but I think like you said it was pretty intentional for that
1: yeah and Eddie Bunker did go on to write the movie Animal Factory which is a really good undermentioned prison film that was uh, directed by Steve Buscemi and it has Tom Arnold in it who's actually really good and really great cast really uh, Willem Dafoe, Edward Furlong, Danny Trejo, John Hurd, Mickey Rourke, Seymour Cassell, Mark Boone Jr. all takes place in San Quentin and uh check it out if you like prison movies. Though, if you're really into prison movies, you probably know this one.
0: (laughs) He had a bit part in another prison movie. Maybe some of you are more familiar with the the Sandler movie, The Longest Yard. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Really, the cast of this movie is pretty little. Mm -hmm. The only two roles um, outside of the characters who are named after colors are Nice Guy Eddie and his dad, Joe Cabot. I think the best performance in this entire movie is Chris Penn's portrayal of Nice Guy Eddie. Who really isn't that nice of a character, as you mentioned?
0: <laughs> no, he is not.
1: And his like ferociousness in this movie, that when he gets upset, is so great. And I think it's one of those performances that you don't necessarily see in like big budget movies because actors don't want to be like spit flying out of their mouth. And yeah. you know, it's, it just seems like much more tempered when they lose their temper in a movie like a big Hollywood movie, but yeah. in this one, I mean, almost his eyes almost look like they're Dude, bulging. Like every vein is like popping in his neck. Like it almost seems like when he finished that shouting scene, like probably had to like take a minute before he could do multiple <laughs> takes. Like, man, are you okay? Like, do you need to sit down? Like you yeah. like really got into it.
0: That part in particular, when he gets angry, it is so intense that upon my first rewatch of this, I actually laughed because it made me uncomfortable because of how aggressive and how mad he was that I'm like what's going to happen right now I mean I know what's going to happen but it's so extreme but so controlled and just this inner seething rage that's coming out that like you said you you rarely ever see a performance like that like his blue eyes are on fire he is so angry
1: and I know that the budget was 1.5 million but from what I understand like the just the wardrobe and stuff was very limited. So they had people bring their own wardrobe and that was yeah. <laughs> Chris Penn's clothes. And just I don't know why the like really ultra tight jeans with cowboy boots and then like like a like a track suit jacket. Yeah. And then chains and then with the blonde hair and blue eyes is he just sticks out so much outside of all these guys dressed up in like suits and skinny ties it's a really unusual look but it somehow like fits perfectly
0: i i don't know why i'm thinking this and it must be because he said this but i didn't commit it to my notes i feel like he said that nike sponsored him or that they should sponsor him or something like that I think I'm, it's
1: like maybe they should i don't maybe I, they I should s- have they i sincerely they doubt that have. nike would have sponsored <laughs> reservoir dogs <laughs>
0: Yeah, they would have gotten a lot more money. But yes, his um, outfit certainly stands out, especially when it's that tracksuit with these guys that are in these like very clean cut suits. Yeah. And our final main actor who wore his look very well was Lawrence Tierney, played by Joe Cabot. He is Nice Guy Eddie's dad and the one who orchestrates the entire Diamond Heist, the one who's in charge of all of these guys, this weathered, just hardened old man who's representing the older generation of tough guy gangster characters. And man, if there's going to be somebody that's going to do it, it's going to be Lawrence Tierney. He was a bit of a bear to work with for everyone involved. I think Michael Madsen's the only one that I heard describe him as a teddy bear, which is, I mean, I guess that's something more about Michael Madsen than it does about Lawrence Tierney. Tierney had fights with Buscemi, uh, Tarantino. I mean, obviously.
1: Supposedly Chris Penn, like right outside of Chris Penn's apartment or something. Really? Yeah.
0: Well, he pulled a thing with Chris Penn too where he just kind of bullied him into letting him stay at his house for a while yeah, and like crazy. making him dinner and taking him out and stuff. He was just a bull, but meant well is kind of yeah. what it sounds like, but was no stranger to getting in fights, drinking a lot, you know, that, that kind of sort of thing. But wore his look and part well. And I think the man that Lawrence Tierney was was exactly what was needed for the role of Joe Cabot.
1: Yeah, and I think too that this started Tarantino's path on knowing these actors that were like kind of bigger in the 60s and 70s and Casting them in a role that's like significant, but like totally fits for what he needs. (laughs) And there's like nothing insincere about Lawrence Tierney in Reservoir Dogs. And, you know, he doesn't get too many scenes, but the scene where he's given everybody their names, obviously the most memorable. And uh, just the gruffness that he has, being able to like shut everybody up, he's just perfect in this role and does uh, look very similar to how Mr. Orange uh, says the thing. Looks exactly like the thing from the uh, Fantastic Four.
0: (laughs) He totally does. Uh, That's pretty funny.
1: Now, you never see him on screen, but he feels kind of like a unmentioned extra actor in this movie. And that's Stephen Wright as the voice of K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s that you hear uh, his introductions played throughout the uh, entire movie before they ramp up and intro songs that sound like they're listening to the radio throughout the film
0: and every character in this movie really loves k billy's uh hits from the 70s
1: and i love his deadpan style of talking it works perfectly for a radio dj who's probably been up all night it sounds like or something he just has a very dry sense of humor and i don't even know how you would describe his stand-up comedy i guess like maybe stream of conscious or strange observational comedy or say i have these punchlines where you kind of have to think after he says it like he it's good that he gives a kind of a silent beat in between so you can kind of get the joke uh, one of his famous jokes was, uh, Yeah, I was really bummed out. You know, I came into uh, my apartment the other day and I found out uh, someone had broken in and stolen everything and replaced it with exact duplicates. Stephen Wright is also really good in uh, the Jim Jarmusch coffee and cigarettes. He has a little short section in there where it's uh, him and uh, Roberto Benigni.
0: I've always wondered how people experience Stephen Wright when they don't know who he is. Because I grew up knowing who he was and knowing his stand-up. And his deadpan humor was always, you know, I got it from from moment one. But if you have never heard his voice and never heard his stand-up, I wonder what you would think, like, hearing him as K. Billy on the radio. Yeah.
1: Yeah, if that was your introduction to him, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of the music, this movie also started Tarantino down his path of not using sort of orchestrated scores uh for the accompaniment to his films but using pop songs and working them into the movie in clever ways like diegetic sound or someone like this movie has it on the radio or in pulp fiction or someone's playing it live usually it's uh something that is like significant to the characters like they're aware of the music they they're commenting on it and this movie it's just all over the place and I love the soundtrack to this and this also kind of kicked off Tarantino would put a movie out and then the original soundtrack would go up for sale and you know you'd get familiar familiarize yourself with all these songs and then find the other songs that the artist did and I think some of these songs probably if you're a Music kind of sewer of like 60s and 70s, like you'd be way familiar with all these songs. But some of this stuff, I don't think I'd maybe heard one or two on a classic radio station. But Little Green Bag and Stuck in the Middle were songs I really, I don't think I knew those songs. But after this movie, it was like, oh, I probably listened to them like a 100 times.
0: One thing that Tarantino did with the soundtrack of this movie, which was awesome because it was copied afterwards, was taking dialogue from the movie and keeping it in the soundtrack to remind you when you're listening to these awesome songs that there is a movie attached to this too. Just everything about his musical choices is so intentional, and it's very Scorsese-like, but not directly copying, really taking that idea and feeling it and feeling what's appropriate for the movie. And in the case of Reservoir Dogs, multiple instances of using a song that shouldn't fit in a scene that feels off-putting. And the most obvious one is Steeler's Wheel stuck in the middle with you that comes up during Mr. Blonde's torture scene of the police officer that he has tied up to a chair and does his weird little dance that you can't help but, like... I mean, you're sucked into that scene and the cutting of the ear and the pouring of the gasoline. Like, this is a really bizarre scene with... Stuck in the middle with you playing. And I love too Tarantino's decision of we hear like the first part of that song and then when he like moseys on out of the warehouse, the song stops because we don't hear the radio anymore. He goes out to the car, we see that he gets gasoline. It's one of the few times that we leave the warehouse and then we come back in as if the song is still playing on the radio. It really is like we are in that moment with the character and we know the horrific thing that he's planning to do.
1: He also uses uh, music and ways to cut the film to keep it moving and entertaining, like the mm-hmm. uh, Hooked on the Feeling, the hookah chaka playing where normally you just have a card pulling up and they're yeah. following, but pumps up the scene a little bit. The only and maybe it was because of uh, copyrights. I don't know. I think that there was a huge missed opportunity in this film, by not uh, having the end credits uh, end with uh, "Like a Virgin" versus the uh, Harry <laughs> Nielsen coconut song, I really think that would have been awesome if uh, that final scene where he screams out and then just cuts to black and "Like a Virgin" starts playing. Just, I love it when movies go full circle. I can't help it; it's just my favorite thing.
0: I don't really think Madonna would have allowed that. I don't one think so either,
1: all. and they probably it, the rights to that probably would have cost them their entire budget. But yeah, that would have been an amazing. Uh, ender
0: the decision to use that song feels the most out of place but it's also one of the most playful coming from tarantino it feels like you this is a movie that you just watched you were meant to be entertained it wasn't something that was supposed to stick with you in in a negative haunting way or something like that even though you just saw literally everyone die in front of you to end with a song that feels just like kind of like it's
1: so goofy bubbly Yeah. yeah
0: Um, it's definitely and a I
1: am in the coconut.
0: yeah, just like a, a definitely a um, different feeling that you're not expecting, and in some sense, bringing you out of this horribleness that just happened, and taking you out of the movie on this bubbly song that reminds you, okay, this was kind of a fun movie to yeah. watch. Yeah, it's
1: very uh, reminiscent of uh, the first Evil Dead. With the camera <laughs> smashing on Bruce Campbell's face, and it cuts to like this yeah. like, goofy 30s, like, arr, arr, you know, totally. You come out of something yeah. so horrific into something that's like kind of shocked your system, like, oh, happy music, what?
0: Yeah, that's a great comparison. It does do that. Yeah. With everything with the music of this movie, it does show you the kind of rhythm and vibe of how you're supposed to feel throughout the film and how the characters um, move throughout the film they're posturing and there aren't very many instances I don't think of using songs that are directly saying or talking about similar action that's happening it's more just the vibe of that and I like like that much more so than being so pointed
1: and it's cool to have a movie that starts with characters talking about music and songs you know (laughs) for the whole opening and then have the soundtrack kind of be worked in and have it be music that's really listenable yeah So it's easy to forget that uh, Tarantino started as a film festival favorite. All his other movies have had just these huge releases. Um, Tarantino started his career with the Sundance Film Festival, and Sundance had really uh, kind of exploded in the early 90s. In the late 80s, Soderbergh put out Sex, Lies, and Videotape. It was a big hit at the Sundance Film Festival, and that was one of the first movies that showed that if it's an independent film it doesn't have to look really really small and look like super low budget it can be a little bit glossy and I kind of think Reservoir Dogs sort of fits in that same category it doesn't look like the smallest budgeted film ever it doesn't look like something you can make with your friends it has a name actor in it for starters a million dollar budget Reservoir Dogs was a hit at Sundance um that 1992 year that it hit Sundance was a really big year for a lot of movies. Allison and Anders had Gas Food Lodging, Alexander Rockwell had In the Soup, they would go on to work with Tarantino on Four Rooms.
0: And two other pretty big and talked about movies that year at Sundance were uh, Greg Araki's The Living End and Cat Shay's Poison Ivy.
1: That's wild that Poison Ivy played Sundance. I know. <laughs> After the success of the film festival circuit, it went on to play other festivals, but it had a, a very, very limited release in the United States. I think it maybe played in like 50 or 60 theaters. Um, In the UK it had a much wider release and made a lot more money. I think Tarantino was like a much bigger name in the UK until Pulp Fiction came out and then you know he was kind of a hit internationally everywhere. Also like the video cassettes for Reservoir Dogs more people started picking up on it and then it just sort of uh, once Pulp Fiction hit everybody I think who wasn't aware of what Reservoir Dogs went back and got caught up on Tarantino. Now, outside of being a smash at the Sundance Film Festival and really getting Tarantino some attention with audiences, critically, Reservoir Dogs, for the most part, was reviewed pretty favorably. Some critics, especially uh, Roger Ebert, who pretty much has given Tarantino four stars for every movie he did post-Reservoir Dogs, only gave Reservoir Dogs two stars, which is kind of wild to me. He made a couple of decent points, but Uh, mostly people who didn't like Reservoir Dogs had a big issue with the violence. Um, There was some walkouts in the movie, including Wes Craven, who notoriously walked (laughs) out because of the violence. There were some walkouts during the Sundance Film Festival at some of the screenings, but a lot of critics, a lot of people had problems with the ear-cutting scene and just a lot of the blood that was in the movie. I was wondering how I would feel about Reservoir Dogs watching it recently, specifically thinking about the violence, because Tarantino's been sort of criticized throughout the years on most of his movies whenever he has like a lot of violence in the film. And it's wild to me because I feel like the violence in Tarantino's movies outside of Reservoir Dogs usually either, are either peppered with humor or they're done so outrageous that it's almost cartoonish. But to me, the violence in Reservoir Dogs feels more real it feels more measured feels more personal and it feels more mean-spirited and so really watching this movie is the toughest watch for me as far as violence goes with tarantino movies especially the ear cutting scene and not so much the ear cutting scene it's the uh Tim Roth, like, sort of making all these, like, grunty noises and, like, slowly bleeding out in a pool of blood on the floor throughout the film. Uh, they did a really tremendous job in making him just look sickly and just kind of gross to the whole movie, especially the opening when there's all that blood there. I think it was the first time I'd ever really seen a movie where a character doesn't, you don't even see him get shot. Like usually in a movie, you see someone get shot and they're like, oh, and you know, you'll see like a blood splurt or whatever, like Tarrant or in like a lot of Schwarzenegger movies, you know, you know, he's shooting up all these guys or St- Stallone movies. But I had never seen a movie where someone's like withering in pain and they're like bleeding out slowly yeah. for like six minutes. And then you're like, oh, man, I'm I'm glad I get a minute. And then they go into the warehouse and then it's like another five minutes it's of It's the entire like, movie. Yeah, he's it's just out. it's really yeah. rough. And that to me is the most. I think that's where I'm the most sensitive with the violence in this movie is the really present agony that's going on. It's kind of a tough watch at times.
0: Okay, I get that it's bloody, but I don't know. I I don't know if it's because it's looking at this movie in hindsight, and maybe it is that, but I, I feel like I've seen, and even by this point, had seen more violent movies. It feels more like like a stage play to me a a lot of things about this movie feel like a stage play but I think because I don't see the actual bullet going into someone's chest I don't see the blood that's like like you just described you know like we see it happening it's like we see the aftermath to me that's not violence it's it's blood and it's terrible and it's gross and Tim Roth laying in a pool of his own blood withering away this ashen face which by the way for for not having a good budget that doesn't look like makeup he really looks like he is bleeding out
1: and they had surprisingly good effects on this um, Robert Kurtzman and Greg Nicotero did the effects and they've done pretty much special effects for every horror movie throughout the yeah you know late 80s early 90s that that people talk about. And they had a, formed a company together, one of the first big special effects companies. Robert Kurtzman talked to Tarantino and said, hey, I got this idea for a vampire story. If you write it, we'll come in and we'll do the effects for free if you write the script, screenplay for this. And that movie ended up being From Dust Till Dawn that Tarantino wrote and starred in, directed by Robert Rodriguez.
0: Now, From Dust Till Dawn, that to me is much more violent than Reservoir Dogs. I do feel like... The cruelty element is certainly there in Reservoir Dogs, but is not the same to me as the excessive use of violence. And like cruelty is awful and emotionally terrible, but I guess it's just like the blood just doesn't bother me. Maybe I'm desensitized. Maybe it's like making an agreement with myself that I know I'm going to watch this violent movie and I should expect it, but I'm going to be more bothered by a throat slash or a face getting shot off i mean certainly tarantino's movies get worse and i don't even mean like the kill bill exaggerated violence like the hateful eight like there's some faces that are blown off in that and like that's violent to me that's why reservoir dogs does not stick out to me as ultra violent now in 92, maybe I would have felt differently, but I kind of just don't think so.
1: Well, see, it's wild. Like in 1992, when I saw this, I didn't mind the violence I actually was watching so many horror movies at that time. Yeah. And violence was just interesting to me. It's like, oh, well, you're seeing how crazy of a kill can you see? Sure. Uh, when I watch this movie now, it's not the ear cutting scene that, that bothers me. It's the, uh, the cop pleading and he's like pouring gasoline on him. That to me is like rougher than the actual ear slash. So I think it's just like level of someone being in agony and like begging for their life in a very realistic way that like is my trigger.
0: I think I just realized something. I might be more of a psychopath than you because I'm laughing. Like I feel like Tarantino wants, he wants you to be horrified and laugh in this scene. But I think that is trying to take the piss out of how terrible that scene is. So maybe it's just we gravitate towards opposite ends of something awful that's happening. I'm using humor to get through an awful scene and you're thinking, God, this is like absolutely gut-wrenching.
1: I think really the only Tarantino movie that I've had to turn away from watching violence is uh, Django Unchained with the uh, dog killing scene and the fight scenes Or. They're pretty graphic, and I I feel like they're meant to be pretty menacing and mean-spirited.
0: It is very intentional, and those scenes are pretty awful. But for the purpose of that movie, I understand why he's doing that. Yeah,
1: and I think we talked about this in the Jackie Brown episode where it seemed like Tarantino had taken a lot of flack for violence and dogs and Pulp Fiction and and tapered the violence a little bit in Jackie Brown, even though there is quite a bit of violence in that. Mm Mm-hmm. But
0: for Tarantino taking a crime movie, a heist movie, something that's inspired by genre films and adding actual blood to it and adding violence, it's kind of what those movies in the 70s were missing and maybe what they couldn't get away with to the degree that Tarantino got away with in in 92. I like that addition to it. Yeah, I agree. And just one more kind of unexpected thing to come out of Reservoir Dogs. There was a subsequent action figure line to come out to promote the movie. These action figures are so super detailed. They're I mean they're beautiful. I've never actually seen them in person, only in research for this episode. But capturing the intensity of the characters in this film is so strange to do (laughs) to have action figures for this film. But it is pretty cool. You know, I I know action figures are super common But for a little independent film, it just wouldn't scream to me, yeah, this movie needs action figures.
1: Well, I think this is a good place to stop. We have something exciting coming up. We did a ranking for the Sandler movies in that episode, and several people emailed us and said, hey, I loved the ranking that you guys did for that episode. So we decided to apply that. Uh, to this episode and we're going to be doing our rankings not what we think the best tarantino movies are but what we like our favorite tarantino movies ranked so that'll be coming up in our final thoughts but let's get to our pick of the week Uh, Lindsay, you chose four rooms which has a lot of connections to 1992 the sundance film festival tarantino that was four rooms what can you tell me about that movie
0: What I've always found funny about anthology movies, or movies which feature interconnected storylines but have their own separate, branching off stories, is that sometimes reviewers claim to feel unsatisfied. But what's wrong with multiple, quick-hitting stories? The ones in this film aren't connected by a theme. They share some character crossovers, but everything is happening to one person. Or more appropriately, to one person in four separate room vignettes. Ted, the new bellhop at a plush Hollywood hotel, finds himself working alone on New Year's Eve. And being left alone at any job sounds like a potential nightmare, but a hotel on New Year's Eve? That's guaranteed to be a calamity cluster just waiting to happen. And poor Ted. That's exactly what happens to him. As the movie title indicates, four rooms means four separate stories. But it could also just be looked at as one continuous story that is Ted's life on this particular evening. In the first, entitled The Missing Ingredient, Written and directed by Allison Anders, Ted encounters a coven of witches meeting to perform a ritual in the honeymoon suite. Okay, passable. Ted can adapt and make it through, just playing it cool, but lord help him if this spell that these witches are working on starts to involve him as a central figure. Next, he stumbles into a domestic dispute. Well, kind of. In Room 404, entitled The Wrong Man, written and directed by Alexander Rockwell, Ted has unwittingly been sucked into some type of sex fantasy hostage situation, and figuring out how he's going to get out of this one is a toughie, especially since he's held at gunpoint the entire time. By Ted's third room, he's unamused by how his night's progressing, and quickly realizing this night is not going to ease up on him. For the misbehaviors in Room 309, Robert Rodriguez's story goes pretty hard on poor old Ted. He reluctantly accepts a few hundred dollars to check up on two children throughout the night while their parents go to a New Year's Eve party. Ted has no idea how fast this situation can escalate in one of the most comical additions to this movie. Ted's night concludes with a setup which takes just a few minutes to unveil. He's brought in as an impartial party to play a major role in a challenge type of thing, a bet facilitated by a trio of drunk friends and a visitor from one of Ted's previous rooms in the evening. I'm not going to spoil any part of this story because it all fits into the unraveling and tie up of the entire film. Tarantino always uses interconnectedness throughout his films, especially the early ones. It's no surprise that this story in the penthouse that he titled The Man from Hollywood should be written, directed, and co-starring Tarantino. And though he didn't write and direct the entire film, his stamp is all over it as he is executive producer and his collaborative partner Lawrence Bender is producer and of course the film falls into their A Band Apart production house. Obviously the addition of Tim Roth has its own stamp of Tarantino and I know Roth is a highly regarded actor but his performance in this movie would be impossible to recreate with any other actor. His loosey-goosiness and over-the-top behavior kind of even puts Jim Carrey performances to shame. It's like all of his appendages are being held together by rubber bands and his constant frantic behavior and remarkably quick tongue dialogue is truly an experience to watch. Ted is the slapstick element that's being put into real life, unfunny, unpredictable situations, and there's an element of danger in every single vignette. But it's Ted who makes it all funny. This is a comedy of problems that all seem to be targeting him. And adding to the hurried feel of this movie with Ted is the movie soundtrack. Mainly jazzy, a little swing, some elements of the exotic or mambo, but unpredictable and where the songs are headed. Sometimes they start out chill, but then can take an Ominous left turn. The soundtrack follows the movie's entire wild vibe with every scene, mainly composed and performed by the band Combustible Edison and co-produced by Devo's Mark Mothersbaugh. The elements of this bizarrely interesting and comfortable, tense, even sexy at times, but it's always following Ted's adventures through the night. And I know I keep talking about Tim Roth, but with every single scene, the movie is just littered with familiar faces like Jennifer Beals, Valeria Galino, Ioni Skye, Madonna. Alicia Witt, Marissa Tomei, Lily Taylor, um, let's see, Antonio Banderas, Bruce Willis, I mean, Tarantino, I already said that he shows up in this. And that's just naming a few. I've always just really immensely enjoyed this movie. It's fun and light, but crafty and clever, engaging and so quick hitting. I somehow liked it more than ever this time around. It's also a great contender for holiday movies. Just really an enjoyable comedic journey of mishaps from four different brains put together for a wonderfully cohesive movie
1: wow four rooms another uh movie that I saw after coming off of Pulp Fiction and was like super pumped about and then was felt disappointed at the time I have went back and rewatched it since you I knew you were going to do this as your pick of the week yeah and I don't dislike it as much as I did when it came out but I'm not vibing Tim Roth in this it's like too, oh really it's too much for me
0: it's extreme it's yeah, too much it for is. me yeah you have to be okay uh, from the get go with yeah. what his character's like
1: yeah it's it's a lot It is. Um, but <laughs> it, it is. wasn't but it is an interesting concept and i think these anthology movies are always tough to pull off because you just have so many different ideas that could potentially clash with each other so the tim raw thing was a good way to like tie all this stuff together and some of them worked well than others i do have a uh, i don't know that i ever told you this i do have a small connection with alexander rockwell what? who did the uh one of the installments of this anthology my very first what? paid gig after film school was um editing the dvd special feature on his movie 13 moons you're uh, kidding one of the guys that i went to film school with ended up moving to la he was alexander rockwell's assistant on his movie and so he uh, sent me all the footage. He was like just using like a small video camera and shooting like a makings of. yeah, and so I edited together the footage. It was like cobbled it together on like an old computer. Um, but <laughs> one of the things that uh, my friend specifically wanted was he was like, at the end credits, I want everybody's picture and then their name from scenes of the making yeah. of. And it was like Steve Semi was in it. Uh, jennifer beals um peter stormare sam rockwell so i did all this like he asked at the the very end and then he had he wanted a picture of himself but at the very very end i added a photo of me like in this closet that i was editing out of and like put my (laughs) name on there so if you ever uh have the dvd of 13 moons if you watch the special credits at the very end of the whole thing you'll see a photo of me when i'm like 24 years old in front of like a archaic computer in a small closet
0: i'm gonna need to see this yeah. i have to see i have this. it
1: somewhere in my I'll, I'll, I'll pull it off the shelf for you
0: yes please do i can't believe you're just coming out with this story. yeah right I, I guess
1: i just never really think about alexander rockwell ever i know but. you don't
0: like to toot your own horn really yeah. either but i i want to know these things
1: yeah my small connection to four rooms
0: that is incredible thank yeah. you for sharing it now please also um share your pick of the week with us this time around
1: My pick of the week, um, a lot of the reason why I did this movie is because I've been trying to get a uh, Ray Liotta movie in here um, due to his recent passing Mm -hmm. uh, months ago, and I came up with Copland because, you know, Connection via Harvey Keitel, and this is uh, yet going to be another installment of me doing a pick of the week where it sounds like I dislike the movie, but yet I'm really uh, recommending people to watch it.
0: I'm over here laughing for everyone that can't see me. Justin, I swear you love these movies. I love Copland. Actually. I do.
1: I feel like it's when I do the pick of the weeks I, or movies that I'm more critical <laughs> of. You know what I mean? But yeah. I still, I still enjoy them.
0: We wouldn't ever talk about a movie at length that we didn't like.
1: Yeah, like, uh, recommend totally. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do a whole episode on Copland. That's If I was going to try to be, yeah. you know, wholly positive. Yeah. But as a pick of the week, I think it's definitely a movie to hop on and I think it was like a very ambitious movie written and directed by James Mangold who we did an episode of his uh, with Girl Interrupted and this was uh, the movie he did right before Girl Interrupted it was a second feature he was able to get together a pretty huge cast for this Robert De Niro Harvey Keitel Ray Liotta Robert Patrick from Terminator 2 Michael Rappaport Janine Garofalo but the big um, get the big stunt casting for this was Sylvester Stallone um, in a more like reserved, quiet role where he's not the hero. He actually plays someone who's uh, deaf in one year. He's like always wanted to be a cop, but he can't get on the onto the force because of his hearing loss in one year that he got because he tried to save somebody who was drowning when he was younger. I'm going to try to keep this short because I don't, there's just so much going on in this movie. I think that's the one issue that I have with this movie is like, there's a subplot that happens in this movie. I think when I was like watching, I was like trying to look at my watches, like about every five minutes we get a new subplot and they just start stacking on top of each other to where um, you'll be watching the scene and you're like, I just don't know the relevance of this scene to the big picture of everything, you know, without spoiling anything if you haven't seen this, because it is a sort of like a mystery unraveling. It takes place in Garrison, New Jersey, which is right across the bridge outside of New York. And it's basically, uh, they call it cop land, because all these cops have decided, you know, we're going to work in the city, but just outside of the city, we're going to have this small town that is just only cops and sort of the idea of like if you've ever um, heard of cop bars where it's like no civilians, it's pretty much like only cops there. Well, this is like an entire small little town. Come to find out these guys are all doing nefarious things. They're dirty cops. Uh, one of many subplots, they're able to run different scams through this town and, you know, not really get uh, questioned by internal affairs, which does start to put the hammer down on them. Robert De Niro is part of internal affairs and he starts closing in on what's going on in Copland, which all sparks because of a murder investigation slash disappearance of, they call him Superboy, this uh, hero cop played by Michael Rappaport. He accidentally kills some teens in the beginning and from there he supposedly kills himself, but he jumps off a bridge, but he really doesn't. They're hiding him out in Copland. And so tensions start rising. We're trying to figure out like why they're hiding them and their plan starts going to the wayside. I also kind of feel like this fits with Reservoir Dogs because it's this sort of plan that some people have and then it just, everything starts going wrong and people start double crossing each other and killing each other. When this movie came out, it was like there was a lot of buzz going on because of the cast and because people were talking about like, oh, you know, Sylvester Stallone is putting in this like performance like how he did with Rocky because he was coming off of like huge blockbuster type action movies like Demolition Man, Judge Dredd, Daylight. And so this was the first movie he had done where it just sort of like resting on his acting. And I do think he does a pretty good job. I don't necessarily know that it was warranted to have a character like this um, because it just again adds like another subplot of why he's this way. And he has a crush on this woman who he saved and she's married to a cop who's abusive and so many things are going on at once. But at the end of the day, I think that the reason to watch this movie is for Ray Liotta. This was a movie that I hadn't watched in a long time because I didn't like it that much when it came out. But after Ray Liotta passed, I kind of went on a Ray Liotta binge and watched about like 10 or 15 Ray Liotta movies. And I, this one I came back to a couple of times because he's the only character in this movie I think is given like A lot of emotional uh, strain and he does what Ray Liotta does best that's sort of like coked up (laughs) angry sort of like he's passionate he's just like like a live wire (laughs) the whole time it's a style of character that he's always been good at and he can just make his eyes kind of go like bug-eyed and crazy and Uh, really is able to make himself like look very unhealthy, like he's just been up for like five days straight doing cocaine. And I feel like this is like the movie that he harnessed it the most, even more than Henry and Goodfellas. He's in level red in this movie. And so it's really worth watching it for him. Again, I think this was a very ambitious movie, maybe overly ambitious. There's just too much going on. It's almost like if this movie was broken up into a television series, which is like what I think they would do nowadays, it would be much better because they'd spend each episode focusing on one individual character and they wouldn't have to like cross cut so much because it's kind of just non stop. You don't get too much time to spend on one specific character. So you're almost just like learning information through the whole movie. It is one almost that's better to watch a second time because you have all this information and then you can just kind of watch it for the performances. It's just one of those real tough guy type movies that you don't really see too often. I don't know. It was a great revisit, especially with uh, Ray Liotta. I think he's a presence that will be missed in movies. Um, He had done a lot of work really in the last like 10 years that I wasn't super aware of and started watching some of those uh, movies as well. And then one extra movie I just wanted to mention that I went back and watched I had never seen. I'd always heard of article 99 with Ray Liotta and Kiefer Sutherland. I saw it on Tubi, and they're like doctors at a VA hospital. And it was actually like pretty decent. And you know, it's has like a TV movie vibe, but pretty solid movie. It's worth a look if you want to go down a Ray Liotta rabbit hole of movies that you haven't seen.
0: I don't think that's ever a bad idea to do. And Copland really is up there as one of his best movies. And I think that you are right in saying that it's an overly ambitious movie. But I, I think that's what I like about it is that it, it does really try. And I hadn't thought about breaking it up into a miniseries, you know, on Netflix or something. Um, but it would totally work as that.
1: Yeah, it almost feels like a movie that needs to be. I Normally, uh, you, you, you've heard me say it so many times. It's very rare that I would say this. It's a movie that needs to be longer. Like oh, there yeah. just needs to be more yeah. time spent on... The development of the characters yeah. because you find yourself questioning why some of these guys are making the decisions that they're doing and I think if there was just like more time for just to have one extra conversation in the scene it could clear up a lot of things but it's really a good movie uh ripe for discussion if you just want to sit down and talk about a movie with a friend because there are so many things that are going on and there are things I think that you know you can be critical of but that will offer up really good discussions on the making of the movie and script writing and all that kind of stuff.
0: Thanks for bringing this one up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, those are our picks of the week Four Rooms and Copland. Here's your Murray moment.
3: Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual.
1: I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow, you're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again! Oh, what does that old queen know?
3: She didn't even show. Okay, mm, this is so strange. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all oh. striking. <sighs> that was fun.
0: Sometimes these Murray-moment connections are direct hits, and sometimes they're adjacent, but always bring us back to one common factor, and Bill is the conduit. For this one, let's go back to May of 2018 for the celebration of Bob Dylan's 77th birthday held at New York Town Hall. This birthday also coincided with the 55th anniversary of Dylan's legendary show known as Tomorrow is a Long Time, held at the very same venue. For Dylan's birthday, the entire show from 1963 was recreated, song for song, but this time it was guest after guest, paying tribute to Dylan through performing and singing his songs from that 63 set list. One reason this show was so important was at the time, Dylan was writing his second album, the album which set the stage and framework for his future albums, which were unlike the traditional country style of his first. It's a pretty cool idea and seems so coincidental that a formative moment in his career should occur on the same day as his birthday, and so many famous faces came out to celebrate this event, including Steve Buscemi and Bill Murray. With great pride in mining out the comedy within, Buscemi performed Dylan's Talkin' John Birch Paranoid Blues, and if you didn't know this, this song is the one that got Dylan booted off the Ed Sullivan show. Buscemi makes this a very fun and charming moment in the show. After the intermission, Bill steps to the stage, and we're halfway through the second portion of the show, and performs Dylan's Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. At this point in Bill's life, he's been practicing with Jan Vogler, Mira Wang, and Vanessa Perez for their album together. He's done a very merry Christmas, plus a lifetime of singing whenever the opportunity to it itself. Bill's rendition of this Dylan song is very earnest, and in the serious yet semi-playful spirit of more recent times. Now let me do a quick uh, Tarantino move on you and flip this Murray moment. Sure, our obvious connection here is Billy and Reservoir Dogs Buscemi covering Bob Dylan, which is totally cool in its own right, but Dylan himself kind of connects to this Tarantino film debut. As any fan of Reservoir Dogs knows, Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel makes the impact of an unforgettable moment in the movie Stick With You, even though it's truly demented. When this song was released in 73, many people thought it was a Bob Dylan song. Even Stephen Wright on K. Billy Radio in the movie calls the song Dylan-esque. And in fact, Steelers Wheel frontman Gary Rafferty was heavily influenced by Dylan's style, so it makes sense. And adding to this, Rafferty once said that the lyrics of the song were inspired by a music industry cocktail party and then having a dismissive attitude towards the whole situation with a heavy twinge of Dylan's paranoid style which populated so many of his songs. I know this was a little twisted ending here to end up on Bob Dylan, but... If you dig a little deeper into this Murray moment, go look up the YouTube clips of Buscemi and Bill covering Dylan, and then cap it off with a Steelers wheel video for "Stuck in the Middle with You," and you see if it sounds like Bob Dylan. It's
1: like I never realized how much, uh, how many, how many events that Bill Murray sang at.
0: He's always popping up at yeah. something.
1: I, uh, <laughs> God, just thinking of him with Steve Buscemi—what a great buddy type movie that would be. Those two guys together.
0: Man, it really—how does that never yeah, come I, into my brain? That would just, be really good. They have a good. Yeah. I
1: could just—they're both kind of quirky. That would just mm-hmm. make a really good pairing.
0: They were both in the the Dead Don't Die movie with yeah. Jim Jarmusch, but not really sharing. Yeah, scenes. not like a yeah, like a thing.
1: They need a buddy comedy.
0: They're so close, but never fully yeah. together in a buddy movie. It needs to happen. Tarantino, can you do this? Yeah, probably not. I don't think he likes
1: Bill Murray, but yeah. whatever. I don't know. Well, thank you for that Murray moment. Of course. So, moment of truth here. Oh, for, man, it's time, isn't yeah. it? All right. So, I uh, mentioned this earlier. When we did our Adam Sandler episode, a lot of people said they really loved that we ranked our favorite Adam Sandler movies. I think we did our top five.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but I figured since Tarantino...
0: We watched, like, 25 yeah, of yeah, yeah. Adam Sandler movies. That was insane.
1: Yeah. But since Tarantino only technically has nine movies, um, he counts... Kill Bill Volume One and Two is one film. Mm, okay, um, we're going to count it as two when we do our rankings. So Good. we decided to do a ranking of Tarantino's movies, not what we think are the best movies necessarily, or maybe so a little bit. In my mind, it's kind of a mix between what I think are his best movies and my favorites, how yes. I like them, in order of watching them sitting down to watch a Tarantino movie, and what, how you know, totally. what they do for me. So that's totally. kind of how we did this uh the science behind our decision making for these for this ranking
0: so we're going to start with i guess what what would be number 10 yeah right now okay yeah
1: we'll start with number 10 and we i'll work our way down to our favorite number okay. one and we'll both kind of we'll go back and forth i'll do 10 you do 10 i'll do nine we're going to try to work out since there's 10 movies we're try not to give too much information here on yeah. why we did what we'll kind of try to quickly go yeah. through these yeah yeah
0: i think that many of these movies too are
1: popular enough that if you've seen them you know what we're talking about i feel like we're gonna uh, you know potentially get some hate for the way we have this Bring stacked but um
0: i want it i would love for give me the hate
1: listeners give us your rankings you know we'll uh we'll post the rankings on social media whenever this episode it's a great you know, post idea up. thanks yeah. justin so I'll, I'll kick us off here yeah. My number ten least favorite, and I I I love Tarantino, so when I say least favorite, I'm just saying like of of all his movies, yeah, the one that I can't get down with the most. Let's hear it. Kill Bill Volume Two.
0: Wow. Interesting. Okay.
1: I honestly believe that you could have just fit everything into just one movie because I feel like a lot of Kill Bill Two is like twenty minutes of something so that one thing can happen. It almost feels like they they feel like opposite. It feels like a lot of Kill Bill Volume 2 should have been in Part 1. I don't know. Of all his movies, yeah. um, I find Kill Bill 2, it's, a lot of it to be kind of tedious.
0: It speaks to you the least. Yeah. Well, mine, number 10, is The Hateful Eight, and I'll tell you why. I think it's a little bit of a Reservoir Dogs retread of people being stuck in the same place and kind of all turning on each other. And while I think her performance is wonderful, I can't take Jennifer Jason Leigh getting hit in the face repeatedly to the point that I know that we're supposed to laugh at it. Like, I just can't deal with it. I, I get why it's funny to watch her talking with no teeth and spitting blood and everything. I get it. But I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it. It just feels weird to repeatedly hit her and make that the
1: joke of the movie. I think a lot of people would agree with you. Hayflew hey, it would come up as their least favorite Tarantino relatively high up on my list. So, we'll get we'll get okay. to that. But um
0: Well, number 9. What's that? Let me guess Kill Bill Volume 1?
1: No. Oh, uh, interesting. There's <laughs> a movie there's a movie in between Kill Bills and that's Death Proof. Um Okay. You know, here we go. <laughs> I uh I did enjoy what him and Robert Rodriguez were trying to do. Death Proof was part of the Grindhouse movie experience which I did go and see in theaters me too and I really enjoyed it it was a lot of fun yeah um and I don't dislike Death Proof but I do dislike the fact that I feel like it's um Tarantino has been a lot of times called self-indulgent I think Death Proof is his most self-indulgent film I think that there's about 25 or 30 minutes of dialogue that, and it's also I just don't think he writes for women as well as he does men. One hundred percent correct. There's just there, I just feel like uh, I'm in a car with four characters, and it doesn't feel like Tarantino's like no. got anybody fleshed out. And I do like the the grindhouse B movie aspects of it, and I do enjoy this actually as a full on thing. So like, if I wanted to sit down and watch Death Proof, I almost kind of want to watch it with the... Um, Planet Terror. Planet Terror involved with all the trailers and everything mm-hmm. in between. Yeah. Um, but as a standalone movie, I, it's it's really down there on my list of, of Tarantino movies.
0: Okay. I think those are fair criticisms. It's higher up on my list, but for my number nine is Kill Bill Volume 1. It's not that it's not entertaining. It's just um, action movies really aren't my thing all the time, especially when it's just beating the ever-living crap out of everybody. Um, and that's why I put Kill Bill Volume Two at my number eight. I like that one better than Volume One. What's your number eight?
1: Uh, my number eight is Kill Bill Volume One, <sighs> <My> and <not. laughs> for this one, I uh, I enjoy Kill Bill and Kill Bill Two to an extent. You know, I think that they're really beautifully shot movies with very well choreographed fight sequences. Yes, um, yes. As far as Tarantino pulling from other movies in cultures, I feel like the Kill Bill movies are are the one where if I'm gonna sit down and watch like a a kung fu type Mm -hmm. movie, like a martial arts type movie, I wanna sit down and watch like a Bruce Lee movie over a movie like Kill Bill. And normally that's not the case. Usually the Tarantino version was the one that I'd prefer more so. You know, I'd rather watch Jackie Brown than Coffee. You know, but that movie keeps Pam Greer it keeps a lot of the same things whereas I feel like uh, the Kill Bill movie borrows heavily but doesn't have the same vibe that some of those movies have yeah. it's yeah, I still see. though I, I still though appreciate Kill Bill for as I see it in Tarantino's career it was like that big leap it's when he started using Robert Richardson as his cinematographer it's where his movies started really amping themselves up being more beautifully shot bigger scope bigger budgets and it to me it's like at least it's like it serves as that like bench historical benchmark of his career of like here's where he went on this was like the next phase of his career after he did his crime series totally number seven
0: number seven for me is Inglourious Bastards This movie is in two halves to me, kind of similar to how Boogie Nights feels like a porno and then it feels like a drug movie. It's just like a hard switch. And while this does intertwine the two worlds, the Brad Pitt world and then the world dealing with uh, the movie theater and the Nazi... I mean, everything that, that is the climax of that movie, I like that story. I like the girl's story much more so than I care about the bastards really and plot wise i think it sucks yet again that um this woman who had her entire family killed by this nazi and she's planning on having the ultimate revenge of killing this entire room and like getting revenge that she friggin dies like there's there's no reason for that to happen and i'm not saying like i need a you know, happy ending to something, but there's no real reason that she needs to die. And this guy that has worked with her entire life, this black guy who's been persecuted by these Nazis as well, like, come on, man, like, let him escape. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I know a lot of people love *Inglorious Bastards*. Right, right. Well, and it's funny because
1: like we're we're having to um, use credit criticism to kind of rank these you know because yeah. why they didn't yes, and yes, uh, yes. you know so it's like it sounds like we're we don't like these movies but i, I like something about all these movies on this list 100
0: percent, yes um
1: but uh you got to start looking at the things you don't like when you're doing when a ranking, you're, you know yeah and uh yeah coincidentally number seven for me also in glorious bastards wow okay and you we know matched. when i looked at a lot of uh approaching doing this I obviously went online googled Tarantino lists and saw what a lot of you know magazines and film sites ranked it and and *Inglorious Bastards was always like if if not number one I know like number two and so we're gonna um, get the most hate over this and this is you know I'll be honest I've seen *Inglorious Bastards like four times it's not for lack of not having really sat down with the movie this is the Tarantino movie where I see his progression. I feel like the opening of this movie is like a more mature, skilled filmmaker. But overall, I just can't get into this movie. The whole like Inglorious Bastards, the guys that are the Brad Pitt group that are going around killing the Nazis. None of that really excites me. Like it just, uh, this movie a lot of times um, is more of a turnoff to me than all of his movies. Um, I still had it higher up on my ranks because I do think that uh, it's a more skillfully made and acted film than some of the ones that I put lower on the list. But I would say this is the one that, uh, for some reason, i ne- even from the first time I saw it in the theater, this is a one his one movie that's always it's the most difficult for me to get into.
0: There is one scene where. Uh, The female protagonist, Shoshana, is sitting at the table with uh, the main Nazi played by Christoph Waltz. And she realizes when hearing his voice that that's the guy that killed her entire family. And she has to hide her true feelings during this and interact with him and not completely freak out. I do really feel that scene's intense emotions. And when he leaves and her release of like that that performance in it um, is really worth um, a, a lot of credit in this movie. The performances in this movie are are really wonderful, and I do think that the movie itself and its storytelling techniques is unique. But that's also not uh, uncommon in a Tarantino movie.
1: Number six, we're working our way up.
0: Man, this is going to be blasphemous. Um, mine's Reservoir Dogs. Wow. Okay. I I,
1: I'm really surprised. I'm wow. sorry. My dick for You're saying like, that we just did a whole episode <laughs> on it, but you know what? It didn't even make it well. That's a, that.
0: I mean, that's that's what we're saying. We don't hate any of these movies, right? That's all, yeah. That's all. I get why Reservoir Dogs is extremely important in Tarantino's career, totally. And it's an enjoyable film. I like it for all the reasons that we've been talking yeah, I'm about. Looking it. It's through just through my notes six. now. All the things
1: that you said good about it earlier in this episode,
0: yeah. Is there's, there's only like five sentences, yeah, right you're keeping track like tallies yours is like in the two hundreds. I'm like at 10. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know,
1: well, speak, <laughs> speaking of hate, uh, my number six is hateful eight and
0: oh my God, really?
1: Yeah. Wow. And here's the thing. Here's my case <laughs> for years. <laughs> I know, seriously. Um, my case for hateful eight is this. I went and saw it in the theater. And to me, it really, I went and saw it in 70 millimeter twice and I really love the way that this movie was presented. You know, it was this big, epic, old-school, big-scope type movie. Western,
0: Western. because you love your Westerns. And I love
1: Westerns, yeah. And I love Samuel Jackson more than any other actor that Tarantino uses, and I think that he was able to just go crazy with this character. I find his character very cunning, very nefarious, very funny. And I think that there's a lot of humor in this movie. I think a lot of the uh, jokes really land. Um, I love all the intersecting characters. I love the score to this movie. I love movies that take place during the winter, and I feel like there's only a handful that really, really capture that you're— totally confined into a a snowbound situation this movie really really plays on my love of the thing and i think tarantino is definitely this is like an homage to the thing especially especially with with Kurt with kurt russell and i love kurt russell in this movie i love again the old school western vibe but i also feel like tarantino it's his touch you know his original touch on um doing a big western movie
0: After hearing your description right now, it's not really surprising that that's what you would pick.
1: Okay, so we're halfway home with this list. I also want to take a moment to say, with these rankings, you know, when we do this kind of stuff, if you asked me to rank these movies like six months from now, or if you would have asked me to rank these six months ago, I don't know that these would all be the same. You know, it changes, you know, because sometimes I'll just get like really hyped about a movie because of my mood or something. You know, you sit down and you get wrapped up in the movie and you're like, "Oh my god, I forgot how good this was or it's better than anything this director's done." So it it changes, but right now I feel very confident about my selections.
0: I love how we're trying to convince the audience that like, "Look, we don't hate any of these you movies." You have to. Yeah. Like have to. like uh, like don't don't hate me, man, because I'm going to put Death Proof at number 5 and Justin you had it at like number -11, right? I just
1: I just want to I wish I could <laughs> hold up a mirror right now of the of the scoffs that you gave me <laughs> when I said Hateful Eight, number six, and Death well, Proof yeah. is your number five. Death Proof is your halfway home film.
0: Give me a pshh. Um, I think Death Proof is entertaining. I think Tarantino does not write women very well, but I'm also not watching Death Proof because of the incredible female characters. I think it's just an entertaining movie about revenge, and it's fun at the same time. If anything, the beginning part, the homage aspect um, of it being like a, a callback to very obvious 70s pulp movies of the time, I think it's fun. And the latter half, I mean, you just watch it for Zoe Bell. It's highly entertaining. I love seeing Kurt Russell getting his ass handed to him. It's, it's fun, and it ends very abruptly.
1: Can I ask, do you like this better as a standalone movie or part of the whole Grindhouse package?
0: You know, I didn't watch them together, but I know that when I did see them in the theater, I
1: thought it was a lot of fun. Maybe so. I don't know. So my halfway home movie number Mm -hmm. five is Reservoir Dogs.
0: Interesting. Here you're giving me crap. Mine was number six. uh, uh, Okay, you're at five. uh,
1: Come on. Well, you had Death Proof (laughs) above Reservoir Dogs, Um, so you know, would we do an entire episode on Death Proof? No, but we did one on Reservoir Dogs, and it it got ranked lower. (laughs) Um, We should have looked at each other's list before we started this, um, but I'm kind of glad we didn't. With Reservoir Dogs for me, I think it's always going to go down as one of the best first films of a filmmaker. But I think that over the years, Tarantino's proven himself. He's done so many great films since his first movie. And I can't say that about a ton of filmmakers. A lot of filmmakers, their first film was like they really had something to say. And then I still love this movie. I still think it has a lot of the bite that it did when it came out. But I just don't think that it is anywhere near as as well-made as some of the movies that I have above it on this list.
0: Well, what's your number four?
1: My number four is a movie that I just watched this week, fresh in my mind, and that's Django Unchained. This movie, every time I watch this movie, I I love it more and more.
0: Finally, another one that we agree on. Okay. It's also my Um, number four.
1: I think that Jamie Foxx was like perfect for this role. He's a great leading man for Tarantino. I also think that it's one of the few leading man Tarantino-type movies where the dialogue is feeling a little bit more natural. It doesn't get too Tarantino-y. He leaves a lot of that for Christoph Waltz. I know Christoph Waltz was like a breakout actor with Inglorious Bastards, but I love him much more here, that sort of oh, yeah. um, sardonic humor that he has. I think works so much better in Django. And I also just—this movie is a fantastic-looking movie. Everything about it is, is so well-developed, the characters, the story— I think this is the movie that Leonardo DiCaprio should have won the Academy Award for, not The Revenant. This yeah. movie, I mean, he brings <laughs> yeah. pure evil to this character. Um, and this is, I will say, this is a challenging movie at times to watch. Mm-hmm. It's rougher than a lot of Tarantino's movies, but I do think that in the end, this was like a real big achievement for his movie making.
0: For time purposes, I, I don't think that there's anything that I could add that I, I completely agree with you. I think that this, uh, this movie really surprised me on how much i ended up loving it and one of the biggest things plot wise uh was the dynamic between jamie foxx and christoph waltz from years of watching movies i really thought that it wasn't going to end up like kind of where it did with their friendship dynamic i thought that there was going to be some u-turn to expect and it was fresh to actually see that it was yeah legit between them yeah well number three it's going to be pulp fiction Not because I don't love it. I love it. It's an epic wandering journey. It's just, um, I like two of his other movies a little bit more.
1: Understandable. My number three is a movie that we did early in the summer. Interesting. Jackie Brown. Okay. Um, okay. I think I said everything that I could possibly say on that movie (laughs) in that episode. But it is, to me, the most non-Tarantino type movie. But I also think that it's one of his most mature and well-crafted movies as far as like characters and story are concerned just has a just a phenomenal cast everybody in that movie is just so perfect
0: i love jackie brown it's one of my life's missions to make everyone that i've ever met watch jackie brown i love it so much and that's why it is my number two
1: movie of all tarantino's movies this these top three were tough yeah uh my number two is pulp fiction wow which i wasn't sure where you were going okay Pulp Fiction, I think, will always be that movie for me that like changed the way I saw movies like I saw in the theater when it came mm-hmm. out and um, just kind of really blew me away. And I've I've continued to like the movie. I don't think that it's aged as well as some of his other films, especially like Jackie Brown, which I think is like aged magnificently. Yeah. But it's always going to be a time capsule of that 90s independent cinema in a voice of a new director like a new generation type movie and um Absolutely. still one of the most funny and like quotable movies if someone was just like hey do you want to get stoned and just like quote Pulp Fiction for like an hour I'd be like yeah it sounds like a fun time
0: oh totally you want to do that later
1: yes <laughs> yes I do
0: we can do that while we watch what is our number one film. So
1: this is wild. We yeah. both landed on number This wasn't planned. I,
0: no, I wasn't sure if this is what it was going to end up like. So but yeah. by
1: process of elimination, I'm sure most everybody can conclude that our number one is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a yeah. poster that's uh, directly behind you hanging up on my wall. It sure
0: is. And Tarantino's
1: most recent film. Not trying to be so hyperbolic, but probably one of the best films I've seen in the last 10 years. Um, I absolutely think it's Tarantino's best movie. This movie is criticized a lot in the same way that Jackie Brown is for being boring and slow and derivative. I just couldn't disagree more. I feel like the tension in this movie is always there. I mean, granted, there's a historical context that's in your mind of like what really did go down. And it's part of Tarantino's series where he's rewriting history. But I think in this particular instance, it worked the best. Um, I'm also a sucker for the insider Hollywood making a movies type movies. I love them so much. To me, this is the best that DiCaprio and Brad Pitt have ever been in the movie. They just make such a great team. This to me is like that buddy movie where I could just hang out with these guys for an hour. I would just watch them discussing the movie, that scene where they're hanging out and watching the episode that DiCaprio's in. I would watch an hour of that. (laughs) Um, they're just they just have it's there's very few movies I think where you see this kind of chemistry I know it's very long but I honestly this is one of those few movies where you'll hear me say I don't mind the length of the film
0: I couldn't agree more about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and I love how impassioned you get talking about Tarantino and I really loved watching all of his films and this deep dive into Reservoir Dogs
1: You know, it's been four years. It'd been over four years we hadn't done a Tarantino movie, minus... just crazy. ...true romance. Mm -hmm. And um, he is one of those filmmakers that's like, everybody's talked about to death, and so I think that's one of the reasons why we were avoiding it. Um, But it's just, to me, it's like, it's undeniable how talented and amazing of a writer he is, amazing of a director, amazing at casting films, finding the right people for the right roles, having things work that shouldn't. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's been a really fun revisiting Reservoir Dogs. Uh, It makes me feel so old that this is the 30th anniversary of Reservoir Dogs. It's kind of frightening, really, and I don't want to talk about it too much longer. (laughs) But thank you, listeners, for hanging in with us. Uh, This is our second Tarantino movie, and I think it's going to be a while. Um, I don't know that I can watch an interview with Tarantino for like at least one full year. I need to take a, a break from yeah. his... Yes.
0: I, I love what he says. Yes. Um, it's just so much information to process. And I feel like there's there's no way that I could ever know what he knows. And I admire his encyclopedia yeah. brain.
1: I feel like my energy for this episode was different because of just watching all of these Tarantino interviews. You did like a
0: Ray Oda line of coke yeah, yeah, yeah. for I, him. Yeah. yeah.
1: I did not. But that's what I <laughs> felt like. That's what I feel like I sound like in this episode. Yeah. So, thank you again for listening. Uh, What do we have coming up next, Lindsay? We're about to go into our favorite time of the year.
0: That's right. Yep, Halloween.
1: Halloween, our scary movies. We have been keeping our episodes down to one episode a month, but we are going to do two for October Mm -hmm. because we love Halloween so much. We love October so much.
0: We do have a theme kind of coming up this October month, too.
1: Yeah, we always do try to go for a theme, and this year it's going to be ghost story we don't really focus
0: aside from when we did ghost yeah we don't really focus on ghost yeah we don't
1: you know and I I started thinking I was like man there's quite a few movies and and there's some anniversary type stuff coming up so it's always perfect reason to talk about one of those movies so first up is a movie that's turning 20 and it's a movie that I find it to be really, really scary. I'm kind of scared to revisit this one and watch it multiple times by Uh myself at night. And that's uh, 2002's The Ring.
0: I never thought that we would do this movie on the podcast, but really in thinking about it, I'm like, I kind of can't wait to dive into this one. Yeah.
1: It's one that uh, I never really think about, but then when someone says, what are some like really creepy movies, it kind of comes up on that list. Maybe not the best horror movies of all time, but like creepy movies. Totally creepy. So,
0: and to follow that up, keeping with that ghostly theme of October, uh, we're going to end out the month with the 40th anniversary of Poltergeist.
1: That's going to be a fun one. Yeah. So uh, two scary movies coming up next month in October. Uh, we hope you join us. If you haven't already, please do follow us on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. You can also find us on YouTube. We have our own channel, Don't Push Pause Podcast. There we have all of our old episodes archived. Um, you can also find all those episodes on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. And if you want to contact us for any reason... Please do uh, tell us your Tarantino ranks. We'd love to know. Um, you can reach us at don'tpushpawspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening.
0: Thank you, guys.
1: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs to the left of me, us to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you, yes I'm stuck in the middle with you, and i wonder what it is I should do, it's so hard to keep the smile from my face, losing control, yeah.